0: I'm Mike Gillis. And
1: I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians.
0: So, uh, hello Patreon people! Um, hey,
1: thanks for supporting us over and over and over again. Um, we are like I'm over the over the I'm over the hill. No, I'm not over the hill. What am I? I'm over the rainbow. I think we're both over the hill. <laughs> it might be that uh, we
0: uh, we don't normally address you. This is not a thing that we normally yeah. do. But I'd like to say again, thank you for your support. If you're new to us, uh, welcome, and uh, if you have noticed on our patreon page we actually have a bit of an election happening
1: right now yeah well and not the kind that sorely disappoints you and makes you want to drink lots of liquor well one that's to set something up that's fun let's not get ahead of ourselves (laughs) but we you you
0: might be depressed after this one but i don't think you will be so um if you're familiar enough with our format we've never actually codified this in any kind of public way but we do Two full classic-style panel episodes a year. Casey moderates one, and I moderate the other. We alternate. And uh, the next one we're going to be doing next month, Casey's going to be leading a discussion on the Highlander franchise. Yeah. And then at the beginning of 2019, it'll be my turn, and I'm leaving the topic of discussion up to you. Within parameters. (laughs) So um, if you go to patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians, there are seven options that will be duking it out, I guess Highlander style, to decide (laughs) who will win the prize. And in this case, the prize is that will be the topic of the next panel episode. So
1: so I I was put my input on these, but I don't think I've read all seven of them. Mike, do you have them in front of you? I do. So
0: the options that are in front of you are Mm Spider-Man, Friday the 13th, Director Joe Dante. Oh, yes. Harry Potter, the comic series Preacher, Lord of the Rings, and action director John Woo. So there oh, are wow.
1: seven different options there. Those are for, those are kind of all over the map, actually. They're all
0: over, and I wanted to get a good mix of various things so everyone can kind of get their, their licks in on this. So uh, the method we're going to be using to vote on this is one that you might not be familiar with. I think they just instituted this in Maine. It's how they vote in, in Australia. It's called Instant Runoff Voting. Ranked Choice Voting? Ranked Choice Voting. Nice. There's like ten names for it. But the <laughs> gist of it is that instead of just you know checking the box off on one... We want you to rank all 7 of these by order of your preference. And the way this gets tabulated and that ranking that's all you have to do. The rest is in our hands. The math yeah. is a <laughs> We're not requiring an advanced degree here. Just no. check the boxes. But it's simple. If you're curious about how this works, basically what it is is that we take all the ballots and we lump them all into piles based on your first choice. And to win, rather than being someone in like a if there's like a seven-way race for anything, uh, those votes can get split up, and you might end up getting a winner who has less than a majority support. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what this does in instant runoff voting is make sure that even if the one who wins is not your first choice, it's going to be multiple people's second or third choice. Sure. So that there's a genuine sense of consensus here. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we, we lump them all into piles based on your first choice, and if somebody has more than 50% support, they win. And if they don't, what we do is we take the least vote-getter, the least first-choice vote-getter, and eliminate them. We go, okay, we look at all those eliminated ballots, and then we redistribute those based on their second choice. Now does somebody have 50% plus one? And if they don't, we just repeat that until somebody does. Uh, that way you can vote for an underdog and not feel like you're not having your your say in the overall direction of this, this, uh, this election. And I, there's a lot of choices here with seven different options. I wanted to make sure that it didn't, you know, just come down to making you choose between, you know, just two things. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think there's some good options here. And I think that it's been actually really kind of exciting to see that most of you have already voted. You've already gotten the email from us, but there's still like half of you that haven't. And,
1: uh, we want to, if I could ideally have one thing, I'd love to have all of you participate in this. Yeah. Well, I mean the, the, uh, we want the Patreon to not just be a one way, not just be a one way thing. I mean, obviously we are so thankful that you, Give us your hard-earned money so we can keep this show going uh, and, and expand what we're doing. And this is, of course, why we were, we would normally be taking July off. We're recording this in the middle of July, um, but we wanted to get something on the board for Black Ops. Uh, yeah. and we wanted to make sure you were there. Also, I just uh, at the, from the beginning I had to mention that uh, I think it was two thousand five. That uh, the Academy Awards instituted instant runoff voting for the best picture, and that's why Crash won. So it might be that da- disastrous. Yeah, this <laughs> might be a total disaster, and we'll be. Uh... I don't think we have a, a Crash esque <laughs> option on here. Uh, nothing
0: truly. Our that... panel in
1: 2019 is Crash. I don't remotely. know what,
0: what. What are our options? Which, which one is the most pandery and the most um, the the most obnoxious? I don't Ooh. know. But I I mean, I, Lord of the Rings is pretty pandery, but Lord of the Rings is also awesome. Yeah. There, there's yeah. no version of Crash on here. It's not like <laughs> one of the options is like Nicholas Sparks novels. <laughs> I would never do that to you or ourselves. <laughs> oh. But I, I think there's a lot there. Yeah. Um, and I think it can, when we kind of break down to just having two of these panels a year, there's a sense of wanting to make it count and knowing since we, we have these things, giving you guys a chance to have a say in this and... You're kind of giving us money, so we're going to give you more of a say than the rest of
1: those rubes. Yeah, exactly right. What I was saying, I want we want more of a two way street, especially since you guys pay us, and we want to all want to be very responsive to how you think. And you know, I we we have a notoriously uh, well tempered, well mannered. Um, Listener base, and we could we could we could add up the raucous a little more. We could we could rile it up a little bit. If you yeah. guys want to tell us what we should be doing, with a finger poked in our chest. But I I kind of like that we don't have the worst parts of the oh, internet
0: sure. watching our you know <laughs> listening to us. You because know? I mean, sure. um, I I can think of other shows that are probably more successful maybe this is a metric of success yeah. that you get awful people but we've been lucky enough that the people who support us act like grown-ups on the internet yeah and, we, we uh, don't
1: have the uh, the stormfront contingent of Radio versus the Martians <laughs> listeners oh, kicking fuck down those our people. virtual doors <laughs> yeah we don't want
0: those people and we'll happily kick them away yeah
1: let's just clarify everyone everyone that we've had interaction with as part of fans of our show has been awesome and uh, you know they've if they've criticized us, they've criticized us in possibly the most mature way possible. Well, they
0: come to us as, as constructive criticism.
1: Yeah. They don't come like threatening to kill our dog. Yeah, yes.
0: we don't even have a dog. <laughs> but I mean, it isn't like there's there's no death threats that get labeled leveled at us. And seeing what other people who have uh, support bases of fans get, um, I really am grateful for how really fortunate we've been yeah we don't have to block any of you yet no i don't we haven't it's it's kind of kind of fascinating so um getting into things that are less um heartening more disappointing um oh there's always room for more disappointment oh yeah jello let's let's make a promise right now yeah uh for just this episode let's not talk about star wars yes any disney related property including marvel okay or how shitty comic books are okay fine okay that's so that's great that is our promise to you for at least the, <laughs> the next hour that we won't do that cuz I, I know we've got a couple things we like to circle with sticks and beat down
1: yeah there's a couple dead horses i'm sure there's more than i'm sure there's more than 2 more than two Black Ops episodes where the uh, the comic book industry is fucked has been sort of the main com- the main conversation. Well, yeah. And almost every single show has something with Disney in it. So Yeah, so I, yeah. I
0: think that one is there's a lot of good stuff there. And yeah. I guess for the course of this, we can, I, you can start talking about something that does disappoint me or I'm afraid will disappoint me. Uh, one of the topics that has been batting around the back of my skull for the past few years is... Something that was a formative part of me growing up, you know, from a pop culture standpoint, but doesn't seem to be important to a lot of people now. It seems to have gone into the mists
1: of time. Hmm. I'm um, now genuinely curious what you're going to say.
0: Oh, well, there was a fantasy series. This is one of the first series of novels. Like when I was 11 or 12, I read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings for the first time. Sure. And that was a huge, huge thing for me. So. There is definitely a big chunk of my childhood that it was invested into that, and there was probably a good first half of my life where nobody would know what the fuck I was talking about if I referenced Gollum. And <laughs> we live in a very different world now, right. right. But uh, during that that era i I gobbled up a lot of the epic fantasy I could get my hands on. and one of them was a series of books, or rather two series of books and two prequel standalone novels that came up from an author named david eddings uh called the bulgariad and its sequel the malorian hmm I, have you Does, heard of these at I, all uh
1: i think you mentioned them in passing in fourth of july uh but i don't but i don't i've never read them before i think the only sort of copy off i know are the are the brian jacques ones i think those are, are like those kind the, of the red wall series red wall series is kind of knockoffs but with animals but no i've never heard of the
0: I've not read the Brian Jacks ones, but I, I do kind of like that they exist. Those are definitely, I guess you could say, in the same subgenre of fantasy, which is mm-hmm. that this is something that is aimed at kind of a middle ground between YA fiction and standard epic fantasy. That uh, the Bulgariad, for those who don't know, is a five book a fantasy novel series about a farm boy named Garion who discovers that he has this hidden prophecy destiny that uh, he is going to come into his own. Uh, He goes on an epic quest for an all-powerful item called the Orb of Aldor, and that uh, he teams up with a storyteller who turns out to be his great, 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 Many greats uh, grandfather, who is the ancient sorcerer Belgarath. This all sounds really familiar. Um, and that the woman who raised him is Belgarath's daughter, who's also a sorceress, and that they've been kind of raising and protecting his family, who are the lost heirs of the throne to Riva. And he's gonna, okay. he's basically destined to to battle the dark god Torak. Okay, and uh, of course he goes on a quest to find the Orb of Aldor, which is this all powerful gem. And that uh, he teams up with your assorted band of characters from different cultures. Of course. uh, Like a thief, a warrior, all those different guys. And that eventually the good guys fight a war against the bad guys, while Garion, uh, Belgarath, and a thief named Silk go on a secret mission into enemy territory. So there's a... I mean, that's the thing with with David Eddings is that um, he has probably the most cynical-sounding origin story for writing fantasy that i've ever heard <laughs> which is well he it's 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 almost like he just admits it bluntly so you can't get angry at him for it. he said like he had been a um adult general fiction author he was in his middle age in the early 80s when he started to write this and he was at a bookstore and just noticed that the lord of the rings was like in, in its 29th printing or whatever <laughs> And I guess his actual quote is something like, "Oh, is this old turkey still floating around? Oh, wow. He's like maybe I should get in on that." <laughs> I mean, I'm not even exaggerating.
1: That, he, that sounds uh, like Bob Kane wanting to do a superhero. He's like, yeah.
0: "Hey, they're making a lot of money. I mean, Woo, I, mean, I got to get some of that cheddar." But it's <laughs> it it was very much um, it very much a desire to like the stuff I'm doing ain't making money how do I get in on something there? And he started by what everyone does is you draw a map and then you go from there. And this series was something I absolutely fucking adored hmm. as a kid. I loved it. I loved every part of it. Um, I think I reread it in my early twenties. um, The characters are incredibly well-written. There's a lot of bantery, fun dialogue. There's a real sense that David Eddings loves his characters, that the sequel is about as blatant a, hey, let's do the exact same thing we just did, but change a couple nouns to the degree that even the characters reference it. (laughs) (laughs) That we're playing out the same plot again, that destiny is repeating itself until we have the final showdown with the dark prophecy and blah, blah, blah. You really go into the sequel series with the sense that I don't really care about that. I just want to be around these characters more. Mm -hmm. I like the way these characters are. The the author clearly loves his characters. And the reason I haven't done this as a full-on panel episode, one, is I don't think I could ever make you and other people read (laughs) a 12-novel thing where there's five books of the Bulgariad then five books of the Malorian. Then there's Bilgarath the Sorcerer, which is sort of him writing his own biography. It's like a seven hundred page book, Shocking. Uh, prequel sort of book. And then uh, Paul Gereth the Sorceress, which is the sequel to that, as his daughter doing the same thing. Hmm. There, it's a massive undertaking. And the other one is that I am terrified that revisiting it in a critical way, or having people that don't have my nostalgia goggles for it, revisiting it would just break my fucking heart. That I honestly, <laughs> I'm honestly afraid that it won't be good. And I can also think of elements in it that are definitely problematic, where even the lead characters kind of casually talk about genocide occasionally. Oh, nice. Um, that the, the there aren't elves and dwarves in the usual non-human races, but there's the different races of man that exist in this world. And they're already b- baked into the, the DNA of this is, uh, the fact that each of these races was kind of scooped up by one of the various gods in this pantheon and kind of stamped with their characteristics. Sure, like the Tolnedrins are all kind of stodgy and money driven, and oh, they're kind of they're a little bit Roman centurion. Um, that the you know the Aaron's uh, are basically um, honor driven and angry, and they're constantly doing the most dramatic thing possible. And it's almost like you create these sort of ethnic stereotypes. And the Angoraks, which are the villains that are the the people who worship the god Torak, kind of slanty eyed and <laughs> kind of olive skinned, oh, and man. Um, they either are mu- mustache twirlers or dumb slaves. And these sort of the elements where this is definitely a transition point between what fantasy was and what it is now. It's the mm-hmm. same in a place you feel uncomfortable. In the Lord of the Rings, when you realize that there's a lot of non-white folks working for Sauron too that are human, yeah, and you're yes. like, oh. <laughs> and there's only so far Faramir's um, monologue about how they're not evil that they're probably enslaved or or, or fooled or whatever, mm-hmm. and that is is he just a person too with a life and stuff like that? But as with a lot of these things, you have heroes that are openly like, yeah, oh, we should just kill all the Angeraks. <laughs> And I'm like, holy shit. And this is just from my memory. I actually was really curious about this, wanting to revisit this world because, again, I love these characters. The author clearly loves these characters. And I read a, an article by a Hugo Award winning editor and author named Jason Heller on NPR's website. Mm. It's worth looking up. It's called Does the Magic Last? Revisiting a classic, a fantasy classic as an adult. And he did reread this. Oh, wow. And, um, there are troubling things in these books. I mean, there's a lot of weird, um, sexual politics that are a little bit weird, like women, and I right? Uh, <laughs> that come up. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff that doesn't age well, that obviously this is a book that was written by a guy who was born in like the 1920s and, uh was in middle aged when, or no? A, he was in was the 30s. I think he was born, but he was in middle age when he started writing these books. So, there's definitely an older sensibility. Than, I mean,
1: is it like a is it like a Robert E. Howard or H.P. Lovecraft style view on the world, or is it slightly? There is no H.P. Lovecraft view on the world. <laughs> That's in almost its own category because, um, but you know what I mean? Where it's like everything's it's a product. So it's so racist in its and it's so dour in its uh, inability to be flexible about. You know, well, types of people in the world. I I always put Lovecraft in its own category
0: because yes, he's a racist. He's he's the god the Godwin's law of yeah. uh, yeah. Everything is of course a product of its time, but he was more than a product of his time. (laughs) That he was the racist that scared other racists back then. There's a certain if you want to treat racism as a certain level of of background radiation, there was a lot more of it that you could be incredibly blunt and undisguised about it back then and nobody thought anything of it lovecraft topped even that sure (laughs) even for his time you're like where other people are like and this is back when u.s senators would run on openly racist white supremacist platforms not dog whistle ones like we have nowadays but like openly going oh the white race uh those people would go fucking white as a sheet with some of the shit that <laughs> that Lovecraft would do. Uh that doesn't mean that there's no value. He's another person I'd like to actually do as oh, a of as a an episode, but um but there is a sense that things are of their time, but even with um Conan, I think the reason those have dated better is one Conan himself is sort of an immortal character. In a might is right type world, and there's a brutality and an
1: ugliness to it that seems deliberate. Um, yeah. And the, well, also, isn't the world old enough so that you can't necessarily ascribe, like, well, this person must be from the Indian subcontinent or whatever? Yeah. It's just ancient enough that it's like, okay, well, people are from all over. And yeah. Really where. But there, you know, there's, there's like this is that, and this is, I mean,
0: there's, yeah. there's not A to A you know, racial comparisons. There's a couple of them <laughs> that get really kind of uncomfortable, but they're more disguised. And I think the other thing, the fact that something was written in the twenties gives me a lot more elbow room to go eh, versus yeah. like, okay, this stuff hasn't aged well, but I love this stuff. Mm-hmm. But again, with the Bill Bulgarian, it was written in the 1980s. Okay. That the first book was written in 1982. The last book of the Malorian was written in 1991. Damn, that
1: guy must have been just tearing tearing him up, everyone every year, it sounds Pretty like.
0: much. I think there was, um, when I actually looked at the timeline of the books, there was one of them that, two of them came out in the same year. Jeez. Separated by like seven months. How, do you, how could you do that? I guess you just kind of cracked down. The books are also not super long. The hmm. Pawn of Prophecy, which is the first book in that series, is like 250 pages. Oh, okay. The, the other one's usually... Average out at about three to three fifty. Hmm. So they're not long. These are not. We're so used to nowadays the sort of George R. R. Martin, Robert Jordan, type you know doorstopper fantasy, right? Right. Like you could use this as a clue weapon, <laughs> but where those like books nowadays, like George R. R. Martin's books, are between seven hundred pages long to like twelve hundred pages right, long. Right. Those are big books. So these are a lot shorter. And I think that if you these are the individual books are shorter than the Lord of the Rings. I think that they'd probably the series itself would be about the same length as the Lord of the Rings. But yeah, I'm I'm kind of terrified to revisit it. Hmm. The idea that there's something that I have a tremendous amount of affection for, despite the fact that I know that if I turn the laser of my adult brain onto this thing, I can't not read things critically. Um, is it going to break my heart? I know hmm. that that it's essentially the, the equivalent of just putting my heart up on an altar and just like tearing it apart with a <laughs> sacrificial dagger if I do this as a panel. And I, I have been pretty terrified, horrified um, to to actually throw this out and say, Hey, here's a bunch of my smart, interesting friends. Um, let's tear this apart, you know, put it through the blender and look at all the individual pieces
1: after it's done. And, I don't know if it'll survive. Do you have anything like that, yeah, Casey? You you asked me this before, and I, I'm afraid that mine's probably even more embarrassing than yours is. I was kind of thinking back. Well, what's the one thing that I just don't want to revisit because I because I I kind of know that it's going to be. Uh, I did. It didn't require me reading a think piece for NPR for it to figure it out, and mine was um, my favorite comedic actor of the 1990s, um, <laughs> Rob Schneider. Jesus <laughs> <This> Christ. <laughs> So I, I kind of I kind of had had a little of a mini mini faint there because I was just like oh it's so awful think about it yeah I think uh, you know I was of like a lot of kids my age like I was little, an SNL kid and you know just try to when I was like eleven or twelve years old stay up till eleven thirty to watch it and that whole sort of golden golden period of. Dana Carvey and Mike Myers and, you know... Phil Hartman. Phil Hartman, Norm Macdonald, all that. That was, you know, that was, that was just the came of my age, and I can appreciate that people younger and older have their different purple period. And I don't know what about it is. I think maybe Rob Schneider's The Sensitive Naked Man was probably the funniest. It's probably the funniest one for me. I don't know why I liked him so much. And then, you know, then Surf Ninjas... Was was one of his first movies where he was like, "Oh, this is a this is a comedic actor in a serious movie or whatever." Isn't the bad guy Leslie Nielsen? Yes, Leslie Nielsen is the bad guy in *Surf Ninjas*. That might have actually been what brought me to it because I always love the *Naked Gun* movies too. Um, And then, of course, Judge Dredd. He plays the comedic sidekick in Judge Dredd. I'll say he does get a pass in *Demolition Man*. I mean, he's still an annoying asshole, but *Demolition Man* is so strong. But yeah, at that time, I was like, I love. I love Rob Schneider. I love everything that that he does. And recently, I guess I kind of did go back. Rob Schneider was one of the comedians to get his own sort of Netflix uh comedy streaming series. Oh no. Semi-autobiographical and oh, I lasted no. 4 minutes. Yeah. That's how long I lasted 4 minutes. Oh. The uh don't follow him on Twitter by the way. I no, I don't think I'm going to want to. It's is like the, the 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 joke that broke it was he's He's coming off the plane in an airport, and there is, he's surprised because there's an enthusiastic fan that wants him to sign one of his movies. He should be lucky. If yeah. this, and the, but the guy has a, has a DVDR um, and he's like, what is this? And he's like, oh, it's a burned copy of your movie. He's like, this will go for a dollar on eBay. I was like, uh, oh, okay. That was your joke. That was your joke. And then there was something about him scratching his balls and using his cell phone or something and I'm like this is done this is over so uh, yeah I am not going to go back and watch Surf Ninjas anytime soon um, you, we might I can definitely say we're probably going to have Demolition Man sometime in the near future oh, I would God. imagine
0: I, that may be the greatest of uh, the Stallone comedy sort of movies yeah of movies yeah. that are intentionally funny from him because I think his funniest movie is probably Cobra yeah of course it is but it's so self-serious <laughs> that it's it's not intended
1: where Demolition Man, I really do think is a modern masterpiece. It's pretty it, glorious. It, it's it's a it's a great genre mashup with lots of good actors. But yeah, no, Rob Schneider is my is sort of my embarrassing piece. And even if he could have, re- he honestly could have redeemed himself if he'd be like. um if he'd be like, well, why can't I I feel like he was trying to make that series of I'm laughing at myself, but he's not. He's doing it to denigrate uh people that he doesn't like. He's doing the Adam Sandler thing, right? Oh. He's he's uh he's positing all sorts of people that are his gadflies and stereotyping them and putting them down. It's the a thing where Instead of making fun of himself.
0: You play the straight man to the world where you just roll yep. your eyes at how everyone else is wrong. Yep. yep. Oh yeah. Some people can get away with that, but it certainly helps if you're not you know laughing at the kids for their their rap music and their baggy pants and their hula hoops and because a lot of times it just seems like an old man shaking a rake at the kids next door <laughs> it just kind of comes across as sad
1: i you know and oftentimes it bleeds into racism a little it, bit it, this is the this is the thing is that i feel like there's a um it's, it's what is it about comedians that when they get older that, I, I was i was watching the um, a couple of the new episodes of Jerry Seinfeld's comedian and cars getting coffee, which I think is is good because sometimes it's refreshing and honest. But Jerry Seinfeld is on, uh, he's on, he's on a, a different, he's cresting another wave. I think, even though he's richer than any human being has any right to be, yeah, it's like fifty cars. And, well, I mean, it's just, it's just like when when the rights, the syndication rights for Seinfeld sells for like a billion dollars or something. You're like, this guy's richer than he has any right to be. Um, he's he's kind of in this mode where. Um, his sort of, his sort of snide demeanor that is part of the character Seinfeld, Mm -hmm. um, is slowly creeping into his real life. And, you know, I think there was, I was reading something about his uh, thing with Ellen DeGeneres, DeGeneres, and, and there were, I think they were sort of just referencing the way in which people who are of an older generation, like our parents' age, which Jerry Seinfeld, I think is about our parents' age. Um, he's got to be in his late fifties at least. Wouldn't you say? Probably more so. Um, Like, they're just... have difficulty sort of interfacing with the fact that there are these huge social movements and large changes in our culture that um, they're not able to contextualize and embrace, or at least contextualize and understand. Yeah. Um, And I feel like... Uh, it it and, really kind of devolves into that that image from The Simpsons of old man yells at cloud. Yes, <laughs> but Jerry Seinfeld is like these are problems I don't have to worry about, right? Yeah, because he's rich. He's the most dismissive, and um, and uh, you know, uh, Ellen DeGeneres asked him like, "Well, what do you tell your kids?" And he said, "I don't tell them anything," you know. And this this is sort of, and then yeah, I think Ellen DeGeneres said something like, "Well, when I when I meet them next, I'm going to ask them about it," like <laughs> sort of thing. Like, what are they what what's they really going to do? Right? It's just when the comedian reaches that certain age where you're just like, well, they clearly don't have any stake in the future at all. And so, and they're, so this is like a Gallagher thing too. Like, yeah. this is a terrible example. Well, Gallagher example. went a totally different route where he just became bitter and hateful. Yeah. Where
0: <laughs> it just got sort of sad, but he's such a, he sort of devolved into the, you know, the kind of casual bigotry of the 1980s where, you know, you have gay panic jokes mm-hmm. and all kinds of stuff where you can like, people pulling their eyes to side and doing really bad asian stereotype accents and right. that kind of shit that people used to get away with a long time is that most people over time went oh man i wish i hadn't done that where gallagher has steered into that hard and go no right. it's not i who is wrong it's the world that is wrong <laughs> and i will i will do that even harder and I'm also angry that I'm not Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah, and the world owes me all of this stuff. That like has
1: a- that had its own particular poison, right? Is that he's he's mostly sour grapes over that he didn't uh, he didn't make a shit ton of money, even though he was a household name at a certain point in time. Yeah, but but I think this the larger sort of thing is about like, well, it's about how do you, if you're a co- comedian or a comedic actor and you're you know you're really past your prime, and let's say you've done you've had the sitcom or whatever, which I think is having the sitcom, I think is the pinnacle that you can have as a comedian is your own sitcom. And you're past that point. You could do something like you could be like Ray Romano, for example, who I think is a incredibly good comedian, like a very, very funny comedian who had a show that went, that was extremely successful. Like, so I'm sure he made all the money. Him and his family would have to worry for four, four generations. It's not a problem. Um, And then now he does like, he does all sorts of crazy stuff. Like, he was... Um, he was on a drama for a while. He was on a drama. He was in the um, Get Shorty show. They, they did it, like, as one of the streaming networks did a Get Shorty show, where he sort of plays this um, down-on-his-luck producer that... Because, uh, you know, Get Shorty is about basically producing a script for the mob, essentially. And then he was in that... Uh, the Kumail Johnny movie. That's name is escaping me right now. Oh, the, is it The Big Sick? Yeah, The Big Sick. He was the dad in The Big Sick. So, he's able to sort of, he's able to experiment and he's clearly trying to grow yeah. as an actor, as a presence. And, you know, Jerry, Jerry Seinfeld is still sitting there defending B movie. Yeah. You know, and it's like, well, I, okay, that's it's fine. It's, it's weird because it's not even like B movies are of offensive. It's, it's,
0: it's a <laughs> bad, it's, it's bad. It's just inoffensive. It's just, <laughs> there's nothing there, there to really do. And that's the thing with Jerry Seinfeld is I don't think that everyone has to turn into George Carlin. Uh, Not everyone has to sort of rail against the ills of our society that I I have no beef with somebody who decides to sort of not get deep and turn everything into a tirade about Donald Trump, which he's like the gravity well of every conversation that you have to try to you have to use NASA esque math to avoid talking (laughs) about. But, you know, I get that. But Jerry Seinfeld seems to almost be disdainful of people that do talk about things or care about things and think that you have to be sort of blandly, universally appealing um, and he almost kind of rolls his eyes at people who do care about things. and I'm like, well you know when you're really rich, like Seinfeld rich, you can have the luxury of not caring about the travails of modern politics. Mm-hmm. But if you're not rich, you d- you're not insulated by all that money and the consequences of the things that happen in the world around you. Jerry Seinfeld's never gonna get you know shot by a cop he's never going to get harassed or pulled over because of the color of his skin he's he's never going to worry about where his health care is coming from even Gallagher probably has to worry about yeah. that yeah and there's there's never a part where when you have enough money, you can sort of be protected from the world and you have the luxury of not caring. And that's the thing is that like Ellen DeGeneres is another person who, no matter how rich she gets, she's probably going to face some level of criticism. Mm. It's easier to be Ellen DeGeneres
1: rich and gay than it is to be poor and gay. Yeah. But and, and that reminds me, too, because I don't know if you saw or have read about Hannah Gadsby, who is a... a do you, have you heard about Hannah Gadsby? I've, I've heard about it. Yeah. So, she has a Netflix special, too. So, it's funny that this is all playing... These are all playing off on comedians that have specials on Netflix, which I guess is the place. It's the new HBO, I guess, for for comedians. So, I mean, Jerry Seinfeld makes the claim of, like, he, he says, well... The comedians don't tell jokes anymore. They just use their stand-up routines as a way to do this sort of autobiographical thing, and that's not as good as being a great joke crafter. That's his 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 sort of There's hypothesis. no reason he can't do both. And and the and really the um, repudia- repudiation of this is. Um, so Hannah Gadsby is a uh, a lesbian. Uh, comedian from tasmania which is also which is like the, the bible belt essentially in australia um who has a who's very extremely understated like as a her delivery is very very understated she's very very good at, at you know at pay at payoffs and jokes um but the whole entire show is a story about her sort of co- her her coming out and her life and interfacing with the comedy world and then the way in which the comedy world sort of changed her as she wanted to more and more tell her story. And without, I mean, I think everyone should, I think everyone should watch it. Cause it was one of those things that when you, when I watched it being like, Oh, okay, I'm a white straight guy. And like, this is, she's, she lives in a world way, way away from my world, you know, um, that she can challenge. She challenged me in a way that I think the last time I felt challenged by a comedian in that way was like, Carlin, for yeah. the first time, where Carlin was like, "Holy crap! Like I didn't know people could talk like this." The same way, except this is this is a repudiation of what Jerry Seinfeld was talking about. Is you, it can be funny, it can be challenging, and it, it can be heartbreaking all at the same time, mm-hmm. and it and, and ultimately end up being something successful. It doesn't have to be this mopey, meandering, pathetic. Uh, you know like it, it you, this person couldn't actually tell a joke if they wanted to no she definitely sort of weaves all those things together and that is that's the future of comedy right the future of comedy is those people who are the you know the the, the anarchists who are able to say what they want and they, they have a medium that they just have very few consequences well I don't think comedy has been a, a sort
0: of set up and punchline sort of world for a while that I think that starting in the probably the 90s moving forward we've gotten a lot more autobiographical, we've gotten a lot more personal sure. than it has been before, then there's there's no real way to get personal than talking about your life and things that bother you and things that anger you, things that scare you, things that frustrate you. I mean, these are all you know grist for the mill for a comedian. And I think that Jerry kind of wants to live in an older world. And he has the luxury of continuing to live in that sort of world, And which is why occasionally he butts heads with somebody yeah. on comedians in cars drinking coffee where somebody who does have that view and you can see him get visibly uncomfortable when somebody like brings up Bill Cosby. I the funniest thing said about Bill Cosby was out of the mouth of Norm Macdonald and it still made Jerry Seinfeld laugh, which was that uh Norm Macdonald said, you know, I was talking to Patton Oswalt the other day about this Cosby thing and what Patton said to me was, you know, the worst thing about all of this is a hypocrisy, and I disagreed. And Jerry's like, "What you disagreed about that?" And he says, "Yeah." Nor McDonald's like, "I think the worst part was the raping." <laughs> <laughs> and, but I mean, that's what it is. Is that you, you? I think that laughter can be a wonderful way of of processing horrible things. Yeah, because I mean unless you just want to cry all the time, and there's there's plenty of things to cry about, but I think sometimes a bit of gallows humor where, like, this is just so fucking awful. How do we even process this awful thing? And there's enough awful things in the world that I think humor is a great way, a great coping mechanism yeah. for dealing with this sort of stuff. I think the the question is not to go down the, the sort of Gallagher and um, Rob Schneider path <laughs> of <laughs> la- laughing at the people that are getting stomped on laughing at the people that are the victims of this horrible thing and saying, look how funny it is. It's, it's, you know, it's like, you know, ants in a magnifying glass. I mean, nobody wants that, but if you're, you're laughing at the monsters and you're, you're saying this is just pointing out the absurdity of it and laughing and you just, you feel, you feel better, but there's also a sense of my God, can you believe this? Um, I think there's something incredibly valuable about comedy. And I think the fact that comedy is becoming more personal and you're getting, more diverse voices in comedy. I'm sorry that if you're a black comedian, the black experience is going to be part of that comedy special. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because there's no way if you're talking about the things that bother and scare and frustrate you in your life, it's going to fucking be there. The same thing. If you're an LGBT comedian, that's going to come up That's some part of your life. And it's like saying, Oh, I'm sorry, comedian. I kind of need you to not talk about your wife and kids.
1: I I think isn't the uh, Gatsby talks about this. I never heard it. I'd never heard anyone articulated in this way that, um, you know, I'd, I'd heard that the idea about telling a joke is a surprise, right? Is, is leading someone to an idea and then taking a left turn, right? And the left turn is what was the funny part. You didn't expect it. But hers was about um, creating tension. And then letting giving you the laugh to release it. You create a situation, people don't know how to take it, and then the punchline says, Oh, it's that I now I get it. Now I get what you were trying to do. It's kind of like a horror movie in a certain yes, way. Absolutely. Where
0: where it's all about leading you towards a moment of emotional release mm. that you you have again, you mentioned the tension, you build yourself up towards it, and then you're like, ah. And and I think laughter and, and horror kind of go hand in hand in this regard because you need those bits of emotional comedy to go into horror otherwise you just get desensitized right and i think that those
1: or or it becomes just an andy kaufman thing where the whole (laughs) thing is creating tension and you have no idea how to handle it
0: where the someone is telling a joke (laughs) and you're just you're a prop in someone else's joke and they're they're doing it for their own benefit that's how kaufman operated right right i think this is the bit that i don't know if jerry is really big on which is that where you need the comedy to break up the horror. You probably need some of the horror to break up the comedy.
1: Yeah, that's that true.
0: You need to get serious a little bit in places. And then, and this was always one of the things that I think there was a Bill Hicks routine where he just goes on and on and on, about the serious. And then he occasionally stops and he goes, there are dick jokes coming by the way. <laughs> um, I think you do kind of need that, that mix up. And I yeah. think that there's enough horrible things in the world that you're going to talk about them. Um, you know Bill Cosby is going to go to fucking prison because of a thing Hannibal Burris said about him in a routine. Yeah. Yeah. That's what really got the ball rolling.
1: That it wasn't like this is a big fucking secret. I don't know. It, it, do would you I mean I'm sure you've been to some stand-up some comedy shows in your life, haven't you? Yeah. Um other than the one of friend friend of the show Jeremy Whitman, which I've been to a few of his. Uh I generally think that people who are receptive to going to a stand-up stand-up comedy show especially even just watching it on Netflix i think there are people who are with a few with some exception who are wanting to have some sort of a challenge yeah who are there they're they're not they're not just there to sort of have tension relieved because you could sit back on your couch and watch your you know the rockford files for the seventh time again if you wanted to there's no shame in that yeah. i fucking love rockford um, but you're you know you're not, with that you're going to be you'll feel relaxed and comfortable but you won't be challenged and the thing about a going into a room with a comedian is i think there is the idea that any there's no sacred cows that once you step into the, their domain you ha- are releasing yourself into this place where you are going to allow yourself to sort of absorb this. Now, there's a gambit involved, and the gambit is is with especially with up and coming comedians is that you could totally bomb, and it could feel super embarrassing for them. Like they have to sit in the room and listen to them tell jokes that just the room is not having. But the or the flip side when they're successful is is that they play the room like an instrument, and and so and they they are able to make that laughter happen spontaneously. Not spontaneously, but happened deliberately. In a weird sort of way, I can, this is another weird connection. But, you're bu- but I'm saying you're buying into that, essentially. Yeah. You're, you're, There's a covenant that you have when you walk into a comedy club and you know you're going to be there. It's it's weird. This is a weird connection to sort of make. But in a lot of ways, stand-up comedy is a bit like professional
0: wrestling, where mm. <laughs> there is a, a planned series. It's always like professional wrestling it's, to you. Everything's goodness. professional. But I mean, if, if, if Randy Savage and, and uh, uh, Ricky Steamboat are going to be wrestling... Uh, They have an ending, they have a couple middle spots, but a lot of the other stuff is playing off the crowd, playing Mm. off the audience reaction, playing that instrument that is given to them, where it's a little bit like jazz, where you don't really know where it's going to go, and you kind of have to let those moments happen to punctuate the bits that you do have planned. So, I mean... All it really takes is one drunk asshole to <laughs> to throw it off there. And then suddenly the comedian has to deal with a heckler. It doesn't do to do with that. Right. Or deal with a crowd reaction that isn't maybe what they expected. And they have to have a, a couple different directions and going. Like a choose-your-own-adventure book. Where am I going to go there? And how do I pull it back into what I was doing? I mean, so it is a bit of a journey. But I think that when you go to stand-up comedy, you are kind of saying, I want to see what this person's brain as a prism for the world looks like. Yeah. I want to see where how they process all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't just want a bunch of jokes that have set up punchline, set up punchline. Sometimes that's fun, but I kind of want there to be sort of a structural narrative that goes throughout all of it to add those sort of jokes and give them some outside meaning than just the standalone piece. That there has to be a context that ties it all together. And this actually kind of ties into something like we put the word out to... Um, our different Patreon folks and wanted to know what they wanted us to talk about. Oh, yeah. Oh, I've f- totally forgot about this. There's there's actually one, and we kind of touched on some element of this hmm. uh, so far. But um, we have uh, Tim Batson and Zuri Russell are kind of asking similar questions. Okay. So I'm going to ask both of their questions. All right. And we can have one conversation as an answer for the, the rest of it. So Consolidation um, of effort. I like it. Well, I think they're touching on a similar theme. Okay. So Tim Tim Batson asks, It would be a great conversation to listen in on if uh, you discussed the role and responsibility of science fiction that science fiction has to explore current socio-political moral problems we face through a lens where, objectively, where objectivity can be achieved without the trappings we routinely find ourselves bound by. And Zuri Russell asks... Do superhero and science fiction stories have innate responsibility Mm. to also be morality tales or warnings against discrimination, groupthink, totalitarianism, and fascism? It can't be devoid of any political or social commentary, right? Mm. Or can it? So I think they're touching a lot of similar
1: things there. I I don't know what you would think, but my first response would be, well, the best kind of science fiction and fantasy more science fiction of course the best kinds are the ones that do are trying to weave together some kind of social narrative to make a point i it's not required for example uh i'm thinking uh i love the movie event horizon which is a horror movie in space um which i don't think you can actually draw a moral other than don't Go to the evil parts of space. Uh, no one really does anything wrong in that movie to necessitate ha- meeting their end by running into the b- the boundaries of hell.
0: But I mean, but Sam Neil's
1: character is kind of
0: obsessed. That obsession yeah. can lead to tragedy. That if you put if you put your desire for for you know either it's knowledge of forbidden whatever right right, right. and you can
1: I, I guess it's I'll say that there's don't sacrifice your humanity on the uh, okay the, I, there's a lot of things i, I think mean, don't you have to have at least some sort of thematic element to make a good st- a decent story i think you do and it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to be a super relevant social or moral sort of pl- uh, platitude um but it, it, but you do have to have some some overarching motivation for the characters to be there if you, know? you have a story that has good guys and bad guys How can you not have some
0: message in there? Yeah. In Star Wars, I mean, aren't we, in effect, saying that governments like the Empire are bad? Yeah. Yeah. And then this is what those bad guys do. And robot slavery is good. Robot slavery is good. (laughs) That's why we put restraining (laughs) bolts on them. It's fucking awful. And we put pain sensors in their feet so that little garbage can droid in Jabba's Palace can have his feet burned fucking cruelty
1: they just they made
0: them just so they could feel pain that's awful and i mean that thing who designed that i don't know mangala it it feels like it why why does it why does c-3po and his entire class of droids they are designed and programmed to be afraid of anything, but they're built so they can't run. <laughs> That's fucking
1: Well, cruel. now I know why IG-88 is the way he is. But, He's yeah. just like, fuck these people. I'll kill them all.
0: But I think when you have something like superheroes, fantasy, mm. um, science fiction, you have essentially a, a fictional world, or you have elements of that, that you can't help but have metaphor, that you have good right. guys and bad guys, that, that bad guys that say Captain America fights are metaphors for things. Or they are big, angry, costumed versions of something that exists in real life, like the Sons of the Serpent, which is essentially a snake-themed anti-immigrant group mm. that fought the Avengers way back in the 1960s. Interesting. Um, there's a bunch of these groups. I mean, Captain America largely fights um, Nazi groups. He fights white supremacy groups. He fights all kinds of, of angry militia groups that are really just exaggerated versions of groups that happen in real life. And occasionally, Fox and Friends gets upset because <laughs> they realize that they're saying stuff that they say. And I'm like, well, maybe oh. the problem is that you sound like them, not that they sound like you.
1: <laughs> yeah, I I I think maybe the the pit we could pivot this discussion about responsibility. Yeah. Um. And and. I don't know. I mean, we, you and I are just observers. We are not uh, successful creators of our own of our own works of fiction. I think that the idea is you are going to... You're always going to serve some kind of... Some, some sort of power or some sort of moral tradition, some sort of intellectual or moral tradition, when you make a good story. Mm-hmm. So uh, you're going to serve something. So the question is, is what how if you're going to if you're going to do that what are you going to serve are you going to serve status quo and avarice and you know just uh the same the same garbage the same garbage that most uh most pieces of genre fiction have or are you going to use it to try to say something different
0: but even the the not good stuff has those things in it we can just say right here that there's no such thing as objective art no, of course not. That everything is created by a person who has a set of values that even if they are not intentionally making, like, Animal Farm by George Orwell, which is very much um, all about an idea, it's all about sort of Stalinism sure. and how awful it is. And it's just using talking animals as a metaphor. Um, it's the same way, like, Captain America Winter Soldier isn't just about how Hydra's bad. I mean this is the thing that I love about Steve Rogers, a character. What makes him a incredibly moral figure in my eye is that Steve Rogers didn't just have a problem with the orbital death laser <laughs> when Hydra had control of it. He didn't want Nick Fury to have control of yeah. it. Because nobody should be able to just kill people. Yep. And he does have the line in there, you know, that you can't you don't make people free by putting a gun at their head, basically. Yep. And he does I mean, that's the thing I love about Steve is that he refuses to dehumanize his enemies. And that's an incredibly easy thing for you know, the Jack Bauer model of hero to do. Right. That I just see a horde of orcs. And in what was it? Uh Age of Ultron, where Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver are characters, and he's getting a rundown on the mission from Maria Hill, and she says, like, oh, they're a bunch of weirdos who would let Who would let somebody experiment on them to give them powers and stuff? And Steve Rogers just kind of says, yeah, what kind of monster would let a German scientist give them superpowers (laughs) to protect their country? Yeah. And I mean, he immediately is unwilling to just write somebody off as a person. And I love that about Steve. And I think that those are things that you can do in genre fiction. The question about totalitarianism and fascism is that, I mean, a lot of a lot of our best most revered comic book stories whether it's dark knight returns or watchmen touch on these things mm-hmm. what is doctor manhattan what does it mean to be that powerful what does it mean to have somebody who can snap their fingers and essentially nuke a whole country or create you know gold out of oxygen or do anything um, what does it mean to have them in the world? How does that change the world socially, politically? Yeah. I mean, the history of the world is different. Um, somebody like um, Ozymandias and the moral conundrum he puts himself in—that he essentially thinks that the way to to make the world safe is to commit mass murder, right? And the the fact that. There are a lot of these characters that are sort of right-wing analogs, whether it's the comedian who essentially just kind of takes orders and goes and knocks off South American (laughs) republics and and Marxist groups uh, because his bosses tell him to and really doesn't seem to have... Anything other than a sort of desire or a willingness to, to hurt people. And he doesn't really care who it is that his, his government bosses aim him at. There's a, there's a message there about, you know, how government power works. And we just slap essentially children's fiction wallpaper on top of essentially murderous, um, <laughs> <laughs> murderous political, um, arms. And I mean, the same thing with, um, a character like Rorschach. I mean, yeah. this is a guy who lives in his apartment and reads essentially Breitbart before Breitbart. Right. And goes out and is convinced the world is shit and that he needs to be more horrible than the worst people and that that's the only way. And even then, he doesn't really believe that he's fixing anything, but he has kind of this crazy death wish and he does not know how else to, to react to this world other than violence.
1: I so, mean... So, I, I'm, I'm sorry, but this is... This is... Will... Your questions, the our listeners who had super great questions, Tim and... Zuri. Uh, Tim and Zuri that had, had great questions. I, the... Place that I'm moving to. I'm uh, thinking about this is, and I, I, it sucks that I have to be. This has to be in my brain when we're end up talking about this. Is that there is a mode of criticizing these sort of superhero stories or fantasy stories or sci-fi stories that have in them some sort of a message that there's this idea that uh, there's an epithet used of, "Well, this is some kind of SJW story," yeah. right? And unfortunately, it's it, it doesn't really have a meaning. It just means not conservative or not traditional or not sort of status quo so any character or scenario or problem where it's wanting to be explored in a way that isn't uh that sort of isn't in the traditional mode of just like oh they're strong heroes or whatever you know like well again st- going back to something you exactly said is they want art that doesn't challenge them right I, and and I I bristle against it every not just because I think it's cheap and lazy Um, and it's a way for people to not engage but I bristle against it because it's obscurantism right it's the it's labeling something in a way that makes it so people they have an excuse not to not to uh, experience it and to understand it and to process it and. You know, I'll go back to talking about the Hannah Gadsby thing is there was some moments in the in her talking when I felt I wouldn't I'm not I won't say the T word. I didn't, didn't felt triggered by any any of it. But I felt like I was like, holy shit. Not only have I not thought about that, like I feel terrible. And uh, my way of looking at the world is as, as what it has been in the past is what uh, helps reinforce this. Like Right. Um that's not easy. No, no one wants to walk into a situation knowing that they are going to have something revealed about the way that they view the world that makes them feel worse about themselves. Yeah. Um, but then again, how else do we ever do we grow? You don't. You don't grow if you're not challenged. So that's it's about. So the SJW thing I just to, to wrap the ball on it is about people who just want to stay in this adolescent stasis and they don't want anything to change around them. But this is the problem. The only thing that stays the same, Mike, is that everything changes.
0: Yeah. The thing that's so stupid about it is that the stuff that they already like, the stuff that they enjoyed as kids already have those elements in them. Yeah. That the fact that these people could be genre fans and they could love science fiction and they can love all this stuff, it just shows me that they have at best a very superficial understanding of it. Or they would know that things like Star Trek and superheroes are already right. pretty fucking liberal because again, this is art made by people in a real world that has a context. Right. And then I can't not I can't create a story about Batman. And not live in a world where things happen and that those elements are going to come into my stories. Why do you think there's all this stuff about domestic surveillance in the dark night <laughs> that came out in like 2008? Right. This is all stuff. Battlestar Galactica is one of the most political science fiction shows sure. that has come out in the last decade and a half. And it's a show that took essentially a, a premise about people fleeing genocide. In a show that tried to play it off as apolitical and made it overtly political. Yeah. Yeah. It was essentially us kind of grappling with the issues of the Bush administration era and talking about things like war, talking about what is it right. that we've having, having
1: the good guys essentially become suicide bombing terrorists.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Where do how do we do are we open to genocide if we feel like we're threatened? Like we've faced this horrible attack. What is a a morally just way to respond to it? How do we, how do we continue on as a society? And if we do things that are questionable because there's no overarching umbrella society to bring us in or there's no law except the law that we make, mm-hmm. uh, if we do survive this and come out on the other side, what are we in those yeah. changes? And I yeah. think those are all important things. And I think that this is the thing that a post-apocalyptic fiction can do rather than I just want to be a scavenger that gets in kick-ass fights with monsters. (laughs) I mean, that's fun. But again, you know, there's something other. I mean, you can watch Mad Max Fury Road and just get a fun adventure story. Yeah. But you can also have a parable about autonomy personal autonomy about sexism sure. about slavery about so many other things about i mean that's essentially what mad max is as a character in every story that he's in after the first one is that he's a guy that doesn't want to be involved who doesn't want to have a stake who just want to does take care of himself and leave but you know he has a heart underneath it all and that heart always gets touched by the travails and the problems of these people that he encounters and he ends up helping so, I mean, I don't know what non-political sci-fi it is that you want because yeah. I don't see it anywhere. And oftentimes, it's impossible to be apolitical. Like, we were talking about the, um, the Death Wish remake a while back. Yeah, the, You know what the worst thing about that movie is? That is, it tries to be apolitical. Mm-hmm. And you can't be apolitical because
1: if you're apolitical, you're automatically, essentially a conservative. Yeah. I I, this is uh, I hate that I'm uh, retreating into this, but I wanted to tell you this. uh, The National Review Online had their top three uh, conservative movies of the year, and can you guess? Well, obviously one of them was Death Death Wish. Was it the other two?
0: I'm gonna guess uh, the. Let's fight the terrorist on the train movie. Yep. F- five, seven, five fifteen seventeen to Paris. Was the
1: Afghanistan
0: horse movie one? Twelve movie? strong. Oh yes. we got
1: it. Three for three. So, yeah. So the top conservative movies of the year are white guys with guns blowing away people with dark skin. Yeah. That was, <laughs> was like, But over and over again. Fuck? But again, it's that sort of like so every other every movie that isn't that is 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 by nature. SJW garbage and but uh, but can we can we acknowledge the fact that uh, there are more genres of movie than just like action movie of of good guys with guns propaganda reenactments of actual events right yeah right it's, it's let's let's uh, examine the fact that the that every all genres of movies and all movies are the the spectrum of range of, of political and ideological thought yeah you know like is 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 it, do you think people who are gonna who are gonna go and who hate SJWs are gonna have like a negative reaction to a quiet place? Are they gonna be like, "What is this calling out the ableism of what, uh, what is people is it- who have hearing or something?" It's like, "Well, what they're treating a deaf person like a human?" <laughs> I mean, that's
0: what it is. It's so weird it's about so this stupid. argument. It's it's again the same. It's the same thing about the ethics of video game journalism, where it's like there's this thin veneer of I'm being a serious grown up, but the minute. <laughs> The minute there's any kind of pushback that just falls away, the pretense just disappears and you're down to getting angry because the lead character is black or the lead character is a woman or the lead character is gay or, you know, it's like we're so horrified at this stuff and it's, it's sad. I mean, there's a kind of a, there is a comics gate that's happening, Oh yeah, but it's amazing how there isn't even the pretext of a bullshit um, ethics thing behind it. It's all about, I just hate this thing. Because I don't control it, and that it's not made only for me.
1: There should never be no art form that's only made for one audience. Period. Hmm. I was reading. Uh, I picked up the new. I don't know when. When did uh, Kamala Khan miss Marvel? When did that start? How long ago that start? Oh man, that's been going for at least five to six years. Yeah, I think I picked up the second trade because the first wasn't available at the library. Um, and it's very interesting because there's a there's a villain in it called the Inventor, who is essentially oh. he's he's Thomas Alva Edison. But to bring him back to life, something else happened, and so he's a parakeet. Yeah, he's like a parakeet man. Um, and his this is it's the writers of of the, the the writers of the comic book clearly know that you know there is the sort of the general audience for people who who read comic books, which is guys our age and older. Um, and then this comic book is definitely gearing itself for kids who are teenagers because the the through line for this is. Um, the inventor is kidnapping kids and basically using them the way that the robots in the matrix use them. He's using them as batteries. It's kind of Dr. Robotnik. (laughs) Yes, he is. Dr. Little animals into, into robot batteries. Um, and, uh, and you know, the Kamala Khan beats him and says, you know, he, she wins back these sort of kids who have been seduced by this idea of, well, we're, if we follow him, we can actually do something with our lives, right? We can help save the world or whatever. Um, but in reality, they're just being used as as energy, as throw garbage, essentially refuse. Um, and her thing and her Kamala cons is, um, no, the future is ours. So let us figure out what we're going to do with our futures. Don't you tell us that we don't have one or that that our future must be what you say it is. And I was like, I can see that there are lots of people who might have a problem with this. I can imagine there are people that have a problem with this, but I'm also like, you know what? I don't ever I don't ever hear that happening in most of the media I consume is where someone's taking time out of their taking time out of the narrative to not denigrate kids as a bunch of hipsters or entitled or brats or whatever, like or lazy. That's, that's that's beautiful. That's totally beautiful, and and it works. It works well within superheroes, the the superhero thing, because they can tell what, whatever story they want to. It's like I'm fine with that. It's not. I wouldn't. I wouldn't write that story. But after I read it, I was like, that would have been awesome if I had written something like that. <laughs> yeah. Right. This is this is great. I, I just think that the possibilities are endless and we sh- don't need to be afraid that there might be a message that you don't expect or that might make you feel uncomfortable because that's what art does. Yeah. And if art's not doing that, it's not really
0: art. Yeah. I mean... It's just a bunch... I don't know what it. why you want non-challenging stuff. The, why do you want things... The weird thing is that the stuff that they seem to want the most is the stuff that was kind of predominantly made during the worst era of comic books. The mm. 92 to 96 era <laughs> of... Just which, which also maps to about the time that I like Rob Schneider, yeah. incidentally. It was, a wor- it was a dark time. <laughs> but I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't want to be challenged by things. Don't don't you want to be surprised? Don't you want to feel something when you take in art? Don't you want to be... I mean, that was the thing that I kind of liked with Black Panther is I loved the idea that Killmonger had a point of view yeah. that I could see as compelling. That I, I want to go, I understand what this person's doing. It's, you know, I... And that th- it puts you in an uncomfortable moral position. Is the villain right about something in a story? I mean, that's, that was always the Magneto thing. Yeah. Is I mean, that th- th- doesn't have to be boring and staid and non-challenging. And I think that uh, bringing in new voices, bringing in new experiences into making art isn't stealing anything away from you because that other stuff still exists and you can make art too. But just the fact that there's more of it and that not all of it is for you. I'm not angry that Hollywood makes movies that are named at me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a thousand you know, movies usually starring like Reese Witherspoon that just have no <laughs> appeal to me. And I'm like, you know it's, what? You know,
1: Tyler Perry can keep making those movies till the end of time, and I'm never going to buy a ticket to the I box mean, office. And that's fine. That's
0: fine. I'm not i not going to watch every movie. <laughs> not everything is for me. So why yeah. should the medium of comic books or even the, the, the genre of science fiction be any different? Why does something have to only be for me? Because these are people that are geared towards thinking that it is only for them. I mean, again, this is the question of, you know, safe spaces and things like that, that I think that why it's so important to keep challenging yourself and why you have to sort of police yourself and bring in new voices and not be exclusionary or gatekeepery, because if you're not, a safe space can become toxic. And I think that if you look Mm, at that, like a lot of fandom that we have of our generation, we're the last people that were part of a world where you could get beat up for liking nerdy shit. Yeah, That's not the world we live in anymore. So there was that sort of uh, self-created identity of it's dangerous to like this stuff, so we have conventions and stuff where we can like this stuff openly and nobody's going to pick on you for it and you felt safe there. And suddenly, people that you don't recognize and who do don't look like you also like this stuff. <laughs> and without that sense of being self-critical, you can become a bully too. Anybody yeah. can become a bully, too, that you can be so wrapped up in your sense of victim identity that you become a gatekeeper asshole who's so angry that suddenly all these invaders are coming in to take all my stuff instead of realizing that you just fucking won. Yeah. That because your stuff is mainstream, you are now going to get so much more of it you and, won and
1: then it's going to be made for everyone too that oh my
0: god yeah. some someone who looks like a jock or a popular girl is suddenly at comic-con yeah. and i'm so fucking angry about that because they didn't have to suffer for it and i'm <laughs> like you shouldn't have had to suffer for it <laughs> rather uh, than getting angry at them just go isn't it great that the generation of kids who like the stuff that i liked don't get bullied for it can't we just take that as a victory let's do yeah I was thinking a bit about... We had talked in the past a couple times about good theater experiences. Like, I really enjoyed going to John Wick for the first time. You mean time. seeing Rent? I've actually never seen <laughs> Rent. Theater experiences? Not that kind of theater. Oh, okay. Like movie theater experiences. Uh-huh. And uh, the A Quiet Place was a really yeah. positive theater experience yeah. for me. And it was something very much unlike most of the ones that I have, where I think that most of the time when you're in a theater you tend to forget that other people are there. Ideally, that's what you want. That's why they have that warning at the front telling people not to ruin the movie. It's why they throw people out of the Alamo Drafthouse. Yeah. Which, I mean, they're doing God's work. <laughs> I mean,
1: there's there's no
0: greater... I mean, forget Sully Sullenberger. <laughs> the real hero are the people at Alamo Drafthouse that throw out the guy who's on his phone. Uh, Fucking monster. They a, should, it, like, beat him down. It's like
1: a good old-fashioned, like, Robert De Niro, <laughs> Joe Pesci beat down. You know, you think it would just be the kind when it's a Friday night, late night show, and everyone's all amped up, that people won't shut the fuck up. But I can tell you more than those shows, since I don't do those anymore, are the afternoon shows, where the people the people that are, they're, I guess they're coming in because they don't have anything else better to do with their time, and so they don't take it seriously like a movie. I cannot tell you how many times at a 1 p.m. show I've had to say, can you please stop talking? To yeah. someone in the dark. that That's exactly what I was getting at, which
0: Ugh. is uh, those experiences where I'm not a confrontational person. I've never thrown a punch in my life. I've never been in a fight. I've never. So it's always been. Uh, and this is, again, as a larger male, uh, when you're a big dude,
1: there's kind of this unspoken bluff that's always there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm about. to yeah, you're, you're a nuclear bomb in a suitcase, Mike. No I'm, one's gonna want to receive a be on the receiving end of one of your guns. I mean, I'm six foot two, like three hundred pounds, and I'm a big enough guy that
0: I think a lot of people think twice about whether they want to fight me or not. Um, they they decide not to. So essentially, what I have is I have the freedom to not have to learn how to fight. <laughs> I've never had this called out on me, but it's again, it's it's Russian roulette. Occasionally, you're gonna get a crazy guy who's gonna want to fight you. So. Whenever I've gotten into any kind of confrontation, um, I mean, a lot of the time when you're a big guy, you just kind of have to do little things to make yourself less threatening. Use your happy retail voice more often because, you know, you don't want to be scary to people. That's just a thing that you do. Probably right? with small children, you probably have that problem, I, too, right? Oh, I just avoid avoid <laughs> that. But I usually avoid children. But, I mean, the most part, um, you can usually end a con— It's because uh, they're too easy to step on, right, Mike? Then. <laughs> They would be, but I mean, that's, the thing is, when you're when you're in a movie theater and somebody is being an asshole, um, a lot of times I'm big enough that a glare will do it, and if it's really awful, I will just simply stand up, <laughs> and it, it will end it. When you're six foot two... That you... won't
1: work with me. <laughs> My head barely over the chair, you yeah. know? So,
0: yeah. I mean, I've had these situations where I have an incredibly long fuse. I wouldn't say I'm like Andre the Giant. Andre the Giant is sort of famous for not wanting to fight. Uh, There's like a story about how he was drinking a beer at a tavern in France when he was very young and these the guys in the village at the bar were drinking and laughing at him and he was just like, and eventually he just had enough after about an hour of hearing their insults from the other side of the room that he just went out and tipped their Volkswagen over (laughs) and went back inside and finished his beer. I mean, I want to sort of emulate that model of it that I don't want to go there. And I really don't want to get to that point. No. I don't want to fight somebody. I don't want them to be the, the the small man Joe Pesci that wants to do it. Because I'm, honestly, I don't know how well I do in a fight. I assume I'm stronger than most people. But I'm probably about as useful in a fight as a feather duster. <laughs> you don't want me in the post-apocalypse. Um, oh. my, my whole routine involves standing <laughs> behind someone else and crossing my arms. And I've done that enough uh, working at various retail jobs where somebody is sort of like screaming at my boss and they're being there's like a lunatic in a retail situation. I just walk up and sort of stand behind. (laughs) Usually there's you cross my arms or do the thing where you kind of have one hand over the other in front of you like your secret service. And usually that (laughs) will diffuse things a little bit. But if that guy took a swing at me, I would have no fucking clue what's going to happen next (laughs) other than I'd spend a couple minutes going, wait, is this happening? Is this really happening? Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Do I want to run? Maybe you
1: just start slapping, you know, slapping with both of your hands.
0: It's the thing. It's a nice little, um, the, the, the complications of being both a large person who's also a tremendous personal coward, (laughs) but, um. Most of the time, it doesn't escalate to that point, but you can usually call a bluff. I had a movie theater experience last year where I got further than I'd ever gotten on the oh, scale. Oh. And at that point, I was I was sitting... I went to see Ingrid Goes West. That's the Aubrey Plaza uh, internet stalker movie. Yeah, great movie. She's really great in that. She should have been nominated for something. I she's, think so, too. She's wonderful in that. That's a very great, uncomfortable movie. I... um went in there and it was only me and a young couple, maybe three rows up from me. And this dude would not shut the fuck up. And I don't mean like whisper stuff like that, or even that thing where they turn on their phone and it's like a, beam of light shooting into your eye (laughs) he was behind me so i couldn't see that anyways but he wouldn't shut the fuck up so it takes me probably the first round like there are levels there are levels that get to this the first
1: level is the escalation if you will
0: the first is a passive aggressive i actively turn around so my shoulders move and glare he doesn't shut up i give it another five minutes and then I
1: have a loud... Five minutes. I would not wait five I'm, minutes.
0: I, I don't know. It felt like five minutes. But that's when you move it up. It
1: was really 12 seconds. You, you get up to
0: a loud shh. Yeah. And, you, and the second one, there's two shushes like that. Then you get to another shh. <laughs> and he won't shut up. And then you get up to shut up. And then he just went, woo, 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 and it kept going. And I'm I'm talking at the volume that I'm talking now. Okay. I want to watch the fucking movie. I'd paid a, a $12 to do this. Sure. And I'm like, okay. I'm I'm starting to think now. The usual things aren't working. Um, I don't know how this is going to end. I don't want it to end in violence. But I think that a, a bluff is the way to do it. So I just get up. I turn around. I stand completely up. And I say to him, you need to shut the fuck up right now where I'm going to pull your goddamn legs off. <laughs> and at that point, a lot of it is that you just have to say, you have to put off the the image that you
1: are a lunatic, <laughs> that you are crazy and that you are threatening violence right now. And So it never occurred to you to be like, we'll just stand up and get the manager, just walk out and get the manager? That never works. They don't oh. care. They plus, don't want plus, they're usually small, timid children anyways. And so. then that
0: guy's just going to start up. And I'm like, yep. I can do the thing the manager can't do, which is I can threaten him.
1: You, you've worked, see, I would do that because I'm also a coward, but you also worked in a retail environment for years and years and years where you probably were the go-to employee where if there was like a smaller guy or girl on staff who was like, oh, we have a problem. Mike, can you help? I'm yeah, guessing you were that guy. If there's
0: a smaller manager, um, I'm not the one to do that because that's not my job at any right. of those things. But I will stand behind
1: the person yeah, doing yeah. that to give the impression that they have muscle. I'm just, I'm just saying that in your life, you probably have either been asked to or just elected to do that, whereas me, no. Not at all. It's
0: I, I My job in, in those situations... I've made, myself,
1: I've made myself look larger to small children before. But... <laughs> is that where you puff your tail up and arch your back? <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> Rawr! Make yourself big. <laughs> um, the uh, the thing that I would always do is essentially be what um, Sven Ole Thorson was to Richard Dawson in The Running Man. Oh yeah, I'm there to just kind of be scary and incomprehensible. Yeah. <laughs> then mm. I'm not there to say anything. But I have a I have a I'm not fucking around face expression while my boss uh, politely tells you you can't do that. <laughs> I've I've done this dozens of times over the years. Um. But in this situation, the thing is to just go big, go fast, and make them think you're crazy. But also, him not wanting to fight someone in front of his date is another added oh, thing. Yeah. That I think he's a lot go. less likely to want to fight me in front of a date, because nobody wants to fight in front of a date. No. I'm not with anybody. I paid good money for this. <laughs> and you I, I ma- make yourself seem as much of a lunatic as you possibly can in a short term. And he was like, "Whoa, man, knock it off, knock it off!" And he's trying to save face, but I mean, the trick to do it—and if you're a big dude—is a the minute they start to talk talk over them with short, fast sentences. And if they start to say, "He goes, shut the fuck up," and you just do that over and over again, you know, just emasculate this guy. <laughs> because then, I, I, this does work. Um, when you're larger, you can do this. But also, I'm doing this as much as I can so that he wasn't fighting. At this point, I find myself pulling the lid off my drink because this is my my finishing move. <laughs> if this falls apart, I can't. I don't think I could make myself actually punch <laughs> him. Like you're but I will throw th- a cold drink in his face. I will throw a cold drink in his face, <laughs> which is as close as I can get to that. Because then he, at the very least, not want to fight, and he'll have to leave and go to the bathroom. Yep. Because yep. that shit, it's sticky. <laughs> There's a cherry coke in there, but. <laughs> It's it's that kind of stuff where it didn't come to that, and he was dead quiet for the rest of that fucking movie, no. and I just got into, turned around, sat down, and it usually takes me a good ten minutes to get myself down from that.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say you probably your adrenaline was probably way up
0: because <laughs> again, this is I, I want to restate, I'm a coward, <laughs> and that I I have to you know this is like you know this is like if I want to
1: defeat fear, I must become fear. <laughs> All those years of watching Nolan Batman, they yeah, really served you well. I did feel like Batman in that moment.
0: <laughs> where the thing is I forget that I forget frequently that I'm a big guy. It's kind of like when somebody has like a, a mastiff that wants to sit in your lap.
1: Yeah, and I I often forget too because uh our listeners don't know, but like when I'm hanging out with Mike either in Valverde or elsewhere. We're usually sitting down somewhere and talking. And so very seldom, sometimes, you know, you get up and then Mike gets up and you realize it takes about 12 more seconds for him to straighten up than you do. And you're yeah. like, oh, I forgot. Yeah. Like, you're, you're Frankenstein. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. I am afraid of fire.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: if you did have like a like a, a bit of a, a bu- like a bush or something a branch and set it on fire and waved it at me i would back off covering my face <laughs> <laughs>
2: well,
1: I, I think uh i think i've only used the go tell the manager once mm-hmm. and it was this one one only time i saw johnny mnemonic in the theater which was in 1995 then they were committing a war crime yeah they really were interrupting was, johnny mnemonic i was there with my older brother who he was also he's also at the time i don't know if he does anymore he liked uh, William Gibson he was a big cyberpunk cyberpunk fan um, and it was the sort of thing where I'm fairly certain the it was probably like a young they were old to me right but I think there were two guys and I think they were probably young, early 20s so they were either drunk and high or both but probably just drunk and they were just they weren't watching the movie they were just talking to themselves and laughing and they got shushes from other people first so it wasn't me who initiated it I didn't do it and then um, I I think I think I went up and I told them. And then eventually the manager who was, like I said, at that time he was probably just a young 20-something kid too, tapped them on the shoulder and they left. Yeah. So it's not like a fight ended up happening. They just got realized they got caught. This is why I thought maybe they were high a little bit in retrospect, maybe they were high. Because mm-hmm. when you get caught when you're high you're just like, oh shit, I gotta get out of here. I don't want to get caught.
0: But I mean most of the time with a manager situation, it's like the end of Back to the Future. was hey you <laughs> it's like it's gonna end that way because Again, I'm 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 able to yell at this guy in a way that the manager can't cuz when the manager's at work and has bosses that can fire him for that and you're always in a delicate situation in a retail or customer service position where you don't want to make people upset and there the movie theater industry is probably very hand to mouth. Sure. that they don't sure. want to scare anyone away. So there's the it's kind of like, you know, fireworks are illegal in Kent, Washington where I live. Mhm. You can't have private fireworks. There's a phone number to report those, but it's essentially a placebo. Right. That you essentially, they know they're not going to stop everyone from setting off fireworks, but they're going to, but the law, they stop about 85%. But there's always some jag off that's going to be doing this at three in the morning, who's still setting off Roman candles or whatever. And if you call that number, it won't do shit. So you're like, do I really want to start a situation that's going to end like the purge? <laughs> I really don't. So I'm still in the movie theater sort of position, where I have to decide, do I really want to do this? And it's a very different movie theater for 4th of July Noisemaker because there is a much greater chance that the person on the 4th of July has been drinking. Yeah, that's true. They're all pumped up on America. and <laughs> that's The that's, most
1: that's, dangerous drug of all.
0: That's a fight that I generally don't want to pick. Um, but again, I don't want to pick the fight at all. A lot of it is, it's just a bluff. This really is the same thing when my, my cat Zira sees like a crow outside the window and freaks out and her, <laughs> she puffs up her back. That's essentially what I did to that guy
1: in Ingrid Goes West. Oh. That, were you able to, were you able to cu- actually focus on the rest of the movie or were, you, or were you thinking about it too much the whole time? Um, I thought about it for about 10 minutes and then I came down and forgot about it. Okay. That's good. And that's the thing is it takes me some while
0: to sort of come down. This is, I'm again, I am... I am not a badass, but um, and this entire scenario from beginning to end of from the first
1: turnaround to I'm gonna pull your fucking legs off is probably about twenty minutes. I think Mike, I think you you should join a super hyper aggressive masculine uh, karate dojo. talk about Cobra Kai. Yeah I, yeah, I think I think we should find we should find the Western Washington equivalent of Cobra Kai. Strike first, strike last, no mercy. Strike hard, no mercy. Yeah, we yeah we should we, and we should make you that badass. I don't want to be that badass.
0: <laughs> it seems like that's the sort of that's a sort of road that ends with me wearing like a pair of like American flag parachute pants. <laughs> I don't want to be that guy. I mean, I'm uh. I'm tr- there, the thing is in these situations I am incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah, well, it, what, then what you need is the train, the mental training. It's the
1: mental training. I am essentially George McFly in Biff Tannen's body. <laughs> I think we also you have to realize that uh, of the myriad things that movies lie to us about, one is the training montage, mm-hmm. is because. Uh, it's just never, never really as satisfying as the training montage, right? Because then you just get you get to ignore all the bits when you're just like, oh, I'm sore, I'm tired, I don't want to do this at all, or I'm failing at doing this over and over again, so I'm gonna stop. Yeah. I don't, I don't I actually don't know if Casey Doran has ever had a, a training montage something in his life that where I'd be like, oh, I'm successful at the end, except for maybe learning how to roll joints. I think you, I could probably make a really great training montage of Casey learning how Is to roll joints. Is there a song by Survivor playing <laughs> underneath <laughs> it? Frank Stallone. Something written by Frank Stallone. Oh, my God. Yeah. You got to get pumped. <laughs> <laughs> You're the best around. <laughs> <laughs> that song reminds me. Uh, I don't know if I've given you this this internet rabbit hole. Um, have I told you about the classic Tetris World Championship? Did I tell you about this when we were at SRGE? No, the Seattle Retro Gaming Expo for all of our. I listeners. can only imagine
0: how hardcore the best of the best at Tetris are.
1: So the um, this is my recommendation for anyone who's eating on their lunch break and they have like you know ten or twenty minutes to watch something just idly while they're eating their you know eating their meal or whatever. Um, so every year it didn't used to be used was in L.A. first, but then now every year it's in the Portland Retro Gaming Expo, which I believe is probably the most popular gaming convention that's not E3 uh that's not E3 or PAX it's essentially the, it's the third most popular gaming convention of the things that they do one of them is they call the classic tetris world championship and by classic tetris they basically mean they only play the officially licensed nintendo tetris for the mm-hmm. nes on original hardware with the controllers and whatnot um, because of course there are like hundreds of variations on Tetris and the mechanics of which are all totally different. But the classic Tetris um, championship is is a mirror of the NES World Championship that was in the North America, I think in like 1991 or 1992. Oh, with the gold cartridge? Yes. Uh, so they had a bunch of different games you'd played, and one of them was, was Tetris. Um, and the reason why they do it now is not just straight for the nostalgia factor. The... Classic Tetris is like the most unforgiving Tetris. So in other versions of Tetris, you can slide pieces off and there's a there's a a way in which you control pieces uh, in other that are a little more forgiving about you making mistakes. Um there is no forgiveness whatsoever. And also in newer versions of Tetris, the pieces aren't truly random. Like after a certain threshold of not getting a li- you know a four line piece, it'll throw you a line piece. In classic Tetris, it's totally random. So you can have a you know, a, a piece drought of like fifty pieces without a line piece, which can completely destroy complete, completely destroy your game if you're relying on it. Oh yeah. Um. So it's this. You know, it's a video game championship of which there are lots a lots like it, where they have brackets and people coming in, and the champion of it is a guy by the name of Jonas Neubauer, who, um. Is I think he works at like a brewery in LA and he's just he's just the type of guy who you probably knew in your calculus class you know uh, just kind of a tall rail thin guy who he's not you know he's not like a on the spectrum kind of guy but he's just sort of a guy who can have like insane intense focus on something and he was just perfect at this he's like Six times undefeated champion of of this, and uh, the thing that is absolutely and totally crazy about the game is is you ha- everyone almost everyone in the world who's played a video game has played Tetris, uh, especially that period when it was on Game Boy and everyone had it. Um, so everyone can can appreciate a game that they have sort of played casually and you know challenged themselves to get to. Like how can I get a higher score? how can I make more tetrises? But when you see these guys that are able to do it and then of course they get to the to the later stages where it's like super fucking fast like it's going incredibly fast and still knocking down these insane tetrises and also the strat all the strategy behind how you build out your well, how you build out that one empty space waiting for the long bar some of it is just it's like ballet some of it is just such beautiful work it's it is incredible and they're totally mesmerizing
0: of all the things in video games i've got to say that the moment where you are able to drop that long four piece bar into a space and get <laughs> that feels better than almost anything yeah. it's it really it's like the same thing it's like that the achievement unlocked sound on xbox is up there sure and you're like, oh, it's, it's, it's pretty wonderful. I mean, there really are. It's like the opposite of the dog and, duck hunt laughing at you. Right. Right.
1: Where it's just about your Makes shame. You feel, yeah. I feel bad about yourself. I, there's also this, this thing of it's, it's a game. It's obviously like other games. It's a game of skill, but it's kind of this Tetris is great because it's a, you're never playing it against someone else and you're not playing it against enemy AI, the thing that's confounding you isn't the fact that okay, well, this spaceship came from a different place and was at a different angle than you anticipated, and so your awesome high score run was like nuked by the fact that there was a little bit of random randomness that came at the right. No, it's entirely of the fact uh, of your ability to, in a split second, know what what the would you need on the board, what piece do you have now, and what piece is coming next, and making that calculus. Um, Honing your skills to be able to do that quicker and quicker and quicker and to be able to make um, compromises that will you can undo a mistake later and make a Tetris. Um, the, the It's easy to learn. It is so insanely difficult to master. And yet a lot of people have spent, you know, mo- I'd say a lot of people who played it have probably spent hundreds of hours playing it. I bet you, like, I, I'm sure my wife, who doesn't play video games at all. Back in the old Game Boy days, I'm sure she played dozens of hours of Tetris. I'm sure it's the video game she's played the most in her life, and she doesn't play video games.
0: Yeah, I think that really says something about the the game. By the way, I would highly recommend there's a guy with a YouTube channel called The Gaming Historian. Yeah, oh yeah, he's who great. has a, it's like a 30 minute to an hour documentary about the history of Tetris. Mm-hmm. There is a crazy history of this game and just the addictive nature of it. And the fact that it was like an international incident playing out <laughs> that <laughs> the Soviet Union fought it out with a guy in US court yeah. and won. Yeah. Um, over the rights to Tetris. There's this crazy story with him making a deal because it was created by this Soviet computer programmer on
1: a government computer, so mm-hmm. they owned it, and yeah.
0: it it is a crazy story, and it well, is... And well, all we're... the
1: people who tried to license it simultaneously, and, you know... Oh, man. Yeah, it's pretty amazing.
0: And people that were selling the license before the thing with the Soviet Union was even finalized, and the Soviet Union found out about <laughs> it, and it is... It is a bonkers story, yeah. um, and it's well worth looking up because why were this many people fighting over what is essentially the simplest video game in the world because there's something about it that is incredible. It's, the sim- it's essentially how many variations can you have of blocks that are made out of four different squares? And you're trying to pile them up and try to fit them together, and the closer you get to the top, the faster it goes. The music gets faster, that you're trying to, um, you're trying to do this stuff and you're waiting for specific pieces, but if you don't get the piece you want, you still have to put this random piece somewhere. And there's something about it and that feeling you get when you do make them disappear, it feels satisfying. It fires something in your brain. And the fact that something this simple created this huge controversy where there's two separate companies fighting over who will make it for
1: the NES. And it really is a a fascinating story. Well, what I love about that too, is that, yeah, of course the, the, the sort of legal battle and the rights, the ownership battle was made because this has happened with God knows how many video games and, and movies and whatnot for people that are claiming that uh, something was ripped off. in video games it's not that big of a deal considering video games ripping off other video games has basically been what video games have been since the very beginning. Uh, something like... Tetris was impossible because you, you uh, uh, back in the golden age of personal computers, um, one programmer guy can be like, "Oh, this Tetris thing that I like that uh, I, you know, that you could buy a, the the you know your Sears for fifty bucks or whatever." I can program that, and you spend a week and they do it and they release it online. You know, like it's just Tetris. Everyone knows the game. It's not it's not a difficult game to program. Um, but it, it, how many thousands? How many thousands of times have, has a has a person or a group of people reproduced the game of Tetris without without having the rights to do so. And you can do it with a completely unsophisticated set of technology. You and can hardware. Do it on your, your
0: graphing calculator yes yeah, <laughs> so. you it doesn't take a lot to make the game. It's not yeah. like there's a, like if you wanted to make Skyrim again. You would have to do so much to match what it is, but you can have the laziest graphics in the world and still create a completely yeah. compelling Tetris game yeah. that's just as addictive as the most advanced creation of Tetris. That's true. That's true. You can't do that with
1: almost any game. So I, I wanna I wanna take this I what did I, I don't think I've ever talked about this with you, Mike. Um I was thinking about the idea of the sort of the copyright fight. I'm reading um a book about the early days of Nintendo um, and how donkey kong being their first big hit oh you're the- talking about the battle with universal yeah the battle with universal where you said that it was infringing on king kong <laughs> so, yeah so universal they were gonna port it to ColecoVision, um and uh universal stepped in and said you're gonna have to pay us royalties because donkey kong is too much like king kong but of course uh they had won a suit against rko that tried to sue them by claiming that it was public domain and King Kong was public domain. So it had already been decided it, it in already, court
0: that they didn't own Do- yeah. King
1: Kong in the first place. So, so they had no standing huge victory for Nintendo Enormous, yeah. vi- and that was the reason why Nintendo was able to succeed is that they didn't get like, they didn't get sued out of existence early on in 1982 or whatever. I, so I was thinking about this. This is one of those examples of this is one of those examples of, and I don't know if you and I have ever touched about this, even on the recordings before is, um, copyright as Mm -hmm. a thing and surely we've had conversations about like well characters in public domain like like it would probably be better let's say if superman were in public domain instead of instead of just being owned now by warner or whatever by a multinational company um i wanted to get your take on piracy as a thing so there's a different there's a different thing of saying well i i want to write babylon 5 erotic fiction in my spare time and put it up on the internet and whatever. And mm-hmm. so long as I'm not charging for it, I don't think that J. Michael Strazinski's dogs are going to do anything about it. Um, I'm really interested in to hear. I, I was listening to Billy Corgan. Talk from, about from Smashing Pumpkins. Yes. Lead singer from Smashing also Pumpkins. Also the current owner of the National Wrestling Alliance. Oh, that's right. He does love wrestling, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah he
0: owns the NWA. <laughs>
1: not that NWA. <laughs> the one that used <laughs> to employ Ric Flair. Yeah. <laughs> uh he was saying that there were two there were two things to come out of the destruction of the music business and of course we i think we armchair the destruction of the music business is basically Napster what, Napster and the internet was caused the downfall of the, the music business and he mentioned two things one he mentioned that there was a certain point in time when um MTV that the music labels were were upset with MTV about how much money they weren't getting paid by MTV to give them their content. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's easy enough for anyone who knows about MTV that the reason why the channel existed is because the music labels would fund a music video to as basically a promotion. They would give this little four, three or four minute movie to them and then they'd play these back to back and uh, it would be like a radio station, but visually. So it'd be like free promotion, essentially, in okay. a new art form. He said, when... The music label said, "Okay, you need to be paying us more." And MTV said, "No, we can just make reality TV or scripted programming. We don't need you." That's when they became he, exactly that. Yeah, that's that's when they MTV started not playing music television. They they didn't have any music anymore except for incidental music. And he said, "The second thing was that," um, and this is where I sort of expected Billy Corgan to become the Lars Ulrich, right? And to be like, "Well, the problem was that it was you know it was people trying to take what was rightfully mine." Billy Corgan said. No the first response of the music industry was to treat Napster like it was a virus that it needed to be killed rather than the the proto prototype stage of digital distribution which is what music eventually ended up becoming. Well the becoming. same thing happened with, with uh, streaming and
0: and like Netflix with Blockbuster Video that sure. at one point Blockbuster Video had the opportunity to buy Netflix. And they didn't take it. I don't right. think that they would have turned it into the Netflix we have today. Well,
1: the the difference here is that, but it was
0: a sort of situation where you could have decided that I can I can compete and coexist with this thing, or I can try to purge it, and in yeah. purging it, I purged myself. Right.
1: And so, like, I've had fr- I've had friends who have pirated things on the internet. I know people who have pirated things on the internet, um, and. Just sort of the the general the general moral question is, um, let's just take it back. 1995, Mike, I came over to your house and you have a copy of Highlander on VHS and we watch it together. You've you've already bought it. We watch it together, so I'm not paying. Neither you or myself are paying, you know, Canon or whatever, any more money to watch that. Or you loan me the tape and I bring it home and then I watch it with my family and or whatever. Or you get it from the library and you bring it home um then there's the extra step of and i certainly remember this in high school um you have the cassette tape for queen's greatest hits mm-hmm. well i i've got the two side by side player and i take a blank tape and uh i make a copy of it that's there and then i give the copy back to you so we could in essence we could be w- listening to it simultaneously at the same time because there's two different copies but by and large it would be like well you're gonna listen to it more i'm gonna listen to it more that it's there and then theoretically in the same the same scenario They've missed out on the, the license, basically the this sale of the license to it for the second time. Um, this, this actually did come into it quite a bit with the idea of
0: rental stores, especially video game oh, yeah. rentals oh, like at yeah. the beginning of it. That at one point, I think video game rentals first came out of um, software rentals that would happen, that people could basically go rent a piece of software, copy it essentially mm-hmm. for free onto their computer for a fee to the rental store. And this could just be done an infinite number of times with that same piece of software. It was legally bought by uh, the company that has that store. And then everyone who, who has it on their computer got it for free. So this is a piece of software that goes everywhere and they didn't get almost any money for it. So I can understand why someone would be upset with that. Yeah. Um, I get I'm less understanding with this when it comes to the Lars Ulrichs of the world, because he's already a millionaire, right? And I th- I think that I have a lot of beef with the South Park guys. I think that I, I have a lot of criticism for their <laughs> attitude that being sort of <laughs> detached, detached and cynical and then laughing at anybody who feels strongly about things mm. makes them kind of assholes. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't create satire or anything. But the one thing that they're not hypocrites about that I do actually really respect about them is that they do poke fun at the the people who are like anti piracy to the, the huge degree, and they also allow all of their stuff to be streamed for free online right, right and so the the very least they're not hypocrites they are guys that that make more money than they can ever spend right. And they don't act like a dragon hoarding gold about every single
1: download or whatever. And I think that... What what was the joke in the South Park episode is that Lars Ulrich complains that he can't have a second helicopter pad at his mansion. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, there's a certain point where
0: a level of wealth you get from creating your art just becomes absurd. Yeah. Uh, That if somebody was, say, pirating... Us, so to speak that isn't even possible because yeah, right. we give out stuff for hey, free guys
1: you you feel free to torrent our show no, I, like
0: <laughs> like i i wouldn't really i would want to know the downloads i mean yeah. to the degree that i wouldn't want somebody else downloading our content and uploading it somewhere else to the degree that it would take away my ability to know how many downloads we have that would bug me i kind of yeah. like them all coming from the same url but um i I'd be also kind of fucking thrilled that somebody wants to share our stuff. Yeah. There's... That's a part where it's a trade-off. I think the fact that we don't make enough money to survive off of just this show, um, I would draw a line at, like, this Black Ops episode. I don't right. want people sharing that for free, because I
1: want it to be a thing that people... Um, Get us a as a prize yeah. for for supporting us. I mean, please don't. But if you do, I mean, at least tell other people to give us money. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to pass it along, say, hey, why don't you chip in? But I mean, I I think the it's good that it's interesting that we bring this to the level of us because I think the only thing that would the only thing that I mean that would bug me slightly. I think the thing that would bug me more, which I think is almost impossible, at least with current technology, is for. Our work to be attributed to someone else. Yeah. That'd that, be the only thing is, like, how could they make it so someone else's name were on the file or something or in the, the post or whatever? But, you know, that's Mike Gillis. I'm Casey Dorn. And unless we have some kind of crazy AI at work changing our voices uh, to something else, I, I don't know, know. how
0: it would be possible. I mean, the main thing is, I think that if somebody creates a piece of artwork, They should get credit for that artwork and they should get a level of compensation for that artwork, especially if it becomes popular. Yeah. A good example of somebody who has gotten screwed that is a friend of ours is uh, Rob Kelly. Of course. Who is the wonderful artist, podcaster, extraordinaire who designed all of the um, graphic art. Uh, that we have on the bio page of our website. He's done banners for us. Yeah, he's awesome. He's an incredibly talented person. He created a piece of art that has been stolen and distributed and he didn't get a dime from. If you've ever seen the uh, picture of... um, Bill Murray. Bill Murray. Yes. um, That has been used on T-shirts, on countless stickers that I've seen on cars and trucks. Uh, I've seen it turned into... Christmas Bill Murray. I've turned and anything. That was an image that Rob created. Mm-hmm. And it's an image that is more successful than any piece of art he's ever made. It's his version of Calvin peeing on something. <laughs> um, that I think nothing, if he got a dime or even a penny from every time that went out into the world or was probably sold and copied on the internet or turned into something or sold on a t-shirt site or at Hot Topic or whatever. right. right. Uh, he could probably make a living off of the success of that image that he did. The reason he didn't
1: copyright that image is he felt uncomfortable copywriting somebody's face. He had a personal moral objection to making money off of another person's image. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't I don't know. I've never talked to him about this. I don't know if maybe part of it was a fear of being sued. It was a fear of Bill Murray's... Lawyers being like, "Well, you can't do this without our permission. If you and, don't like this rights, and he didn't try to sell it, he just made it
0: a piece of artwork
1: that was on his website,
0: right. which is again perfectly legal. Uh, he wasn't selling it on merch, um, and it's a sort of thing where again, he made it because he likes Bill Murray." And the last thing you want to do is to get into a fight with Bill Murray. And that's, <laughs> that's the thing, too, is that, again, the people who are pirating your stuff are also generally people who like your stuff. So you yeah. get into a complicated relationship with these people. And I think that um, the stories that I've heard, which I think are pretty great, is that if you find that there's a community of people that are forwarding or scanning your stuff and sort of throwing it out into the world, it's great that people love your stuff. But sometimes all you should probably do is rather than try to bring down the fire from the heavens on them. That you should interact with them and say, hey, I'm so-and-so, I created this artwork. If you like this stuff, here's where you can buy it from me. And I I really love that you guys are spreading the word about stuff that I created. And I think that's great. And I think 90% of the time, those people will go, hey, that's great if you like him. And you'd probably get a bunch of sales out of it. By not assuming that someone is your enemy and just engaging with them and saying, hey, this is a way that I can I can make some money off it. And if you like this stuff, um, if you buy it here, I can make more of it. And yeah. that's even better for yeah. everybody
1: because you do enjoy my stuff so much. I mean, I, I think we've circled around this, but I, I should play the, the opposite advocate here and say, well, you know, we have been conditioned to a degree where things online are free. And people who listen to this podcast, the normal version of this podcast – Um, you know, we don't, there's no, there are no barriers to listening to radio versus the Martians. There are just none. And it would be silly. It would be very silly of us to sort of put it behind a paywall because then I think our, our viewership would just drop off precipitously. And then people, new people who would want to hear us would have that barrier, that bar that would be too high. And it would just, it would be dumb to do it. Um, but we have been conditioned to free and that can lead to a situation where, um, people just don't think people just don't think about the idea that, OK, well, maybe maybe if for the for the whole deal to be square, someone to get a piece broken off for them to do it, um, which Patreon is great because it's voluntary. We're not we're not, you know, we're not bringing the hammer down on you. We're not sticking our lawyers on you for not paying us or whatever. We're just saying give us a tip, essentially a recurring tip. <laughs> if, if you, you can. like what we do. Yeah. Um, I but I I I there is a danger. There is a danger to the idea of like, well, p- people not people not paying what they want to. I have so much less sympathy where it's sort of like, well, this this rights holder has the uh you know has the rights to this, and you can you can only get it from them. Not not because there's any royalties for the original artist, like. The, like, the majority of classic video games, for example, um, you can't... Buy, did I already use the DuckTales 2 example? Yeah. You, you can't buy DuckTales 2 at all anywhere legit. You can only buy one from a collector for $400 on eBay. You can't. You don't have any other way to play it if you don't, unless you get a ROM and you, you pirate it or whatever. In those instances, like, I don't... If you really want to play it, if you want to experience it, no... no, None of those, uh, those you know, that gaggle of japanese artists and programmers and composers and workers none of those guys are getting any money of from you buying it on ebay and in fact if it ever comes to the the virtual channel on uh the on your your we or whatever your wii u or your switch they're not getting any money for it either you know so just, it's, it's the it's, same sort it's of hard thing. it's hard i
0: It reminds me of the Star Wars
1: Despecialized Edition. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That there are people that... That's
0: a great example. They spent a lot of money to make a thing that the rights holders will not release. I I know that Disney owns um, a lot of that. I think the distribution of the original trilogy and maybe even the prequels, I think, is held under 20th Century Fox still. Maybe this will all be resolved if they buy Fox, which it looks like Disney will do. Mm. But that... There is a real desire to get the original non-special edition trilogy... On, on a media format, even if it's digital or if it's Blu ray or whatever, that people want that and that George Lucas was unwilling to sell them that version of it. It's weird because Lucas in many ways is sort of both the hero and the villain of this very topic. Yeah. Because on one hand, he refuses to allow that piece of cinematic history to be available for people to, to engage, engage with and to see because it's not the version he wants to sell that. George Lucas is a guy who uh, wants the latest draft of it to be the only one that's available. And the problem with that is that the version of it, special effects-wise, and acting performances that was that art is especially film, is not a it's a collaborative effort. That he's not the only person who made the Star Wars movies. He wrote and directed the first one, but even the sequels to that were directed by other people. And that special effects team that crafted like the destruction of the Death Star and all of these practical effects, that was a team of people who won awards for it. There was Oscars that they won for the special effects work they did, which is being buried and is not being allowed to be part of the cinematic record. I don't begrudge Lucas the ability to go back and add things or change things but make it part of a continuum where you have something like the four disc blade runner set right. where yep. you can get yep. all the different cuts of this and you can compare and contrast them yeah. don't don't basically uh, overwrite one of them with the new one especially when the other one the version that existed between 1977 and 1997 mm-hmm. is the version that is part of cinematic history. Yeah. That is the version that won awards. That is a, that is the version that became a part of popular culture. That is the version that all of these people worked on. And I don't want to, it's like the same guy. There's a guy who did the voice of Boba Fett. Yep. And he had like four lines, but he's erased from a trilogy. That guy who did that voice is now erased that his contribution to this piece of popular culture and given that some of these guys their best work the money they can get <laughs> is working the convention circuit yeah. and now that that guy from New Zealand
1: is is talking <laughs> over the bits that I used to be in that movie that's kind of annoying well and then you what well, you the point you're circling around here is then you have like the despecialized edition which is the brainchild of one guy who is in Ro- Romania or something Bulgaria I think who's a VFX artist who I think he actually worked on part of Blade our twenty forty nine. Oh, he was. He did. He was part of one of the companies of the like dozens of companies that did VFX on it. Um, who decided he's he's going to take all of the existing sort of Blu-ray special edition versions and the uh, laser the laser versions, and then any prints that people still have in existence, whether they be sixteen or thirty or thirty-five, and scan them and try to repair, sort of repair and get back to the original. And although it'll never be. The original, right? Because he's just sort of trying to Frankenstein it together from original stuff. He's trying to replicate a, you know, a a quality experience that's better than a videotape or a Laserdisc, which most people can't play those two things right now where people can experience the original the original trilogy and of course it's this can't be sold um, and I, I don't think he would he would probably say I would never want it to be sold think of the money that he has spent making
0: that oh yeah and he's legally barred from getting anything back from it he can't even recoup his costs
1: but I'm sure but I'm sure in his mind he's just doing it out of love for the source material and if people watch it and lo- and like it and can experience what he experienced again, I'm sure that's more than enough for him. And it's a much since, more... Since he knows it's not his work, right? And it's a much
0: more dangerous game playing this game of chicken with Disney than it ever was with George Lucas.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah. Because
0: despite the fact that George Lucas doesn't want to release that older classic version of that movie that he made, that George Lucas was remarkably cool about... IP when it came to people making fan films and other things using his character and his universe that he actually had sound effects and other things put on his site officially so for the use of these people making that things like the the 501st and stuff were allowed sure, to sure. operate that he could set rules and stuff and say, okay, I don't want this reflecting badly on me. So these are the the conditions I can set. But I'm happy for you guys doing charity work and you clearly love the stuff I have that I've created because I also know that those people who are creating all that stuff are also probably buying every fucking box set and toy and video game and everything that I put out. That fighting with them is a good way to piss off a good chunk of your fan base and look like an asshole. So he was way cooler with that than almost anyone else would be. No, I mean, because Lucasfilm was essentially a small business, it was essentially a, a really, a really upscale um, mom-and-pop shop yeah. that he had complete control over, that he was able to do that. Warner Brothers never would have done that with anybody. You know, Universal Studios never would have done that with anybody. They would sue, and they're not afraid. It's the same way Hanna-Barbera... Um, is a lot more friendly than Disney is. Because remember, yeah. there was that uh, daycare center a while back that had <laughs> di- like Lion King characters <laughs> pinned up on their wall and Disney sued to have them taken down. And Hannah Bear was like, well, you guys can use our characters. That's fine. I mean, the, the there's a sort of like cold, you know, like that's just the rules sort of meanness that kind of comes out that you didn't get from George Lucas. Mm-hmm. And the other thing with this too, again, is I think that artists should be able to make money off of things. I think the there's a point at which you should give it up. There should be an expiration date on this, that Superman is not owned by, you know, Siegel and Schuster, the guys who created it, he's owned by a corporation that will never die. Yeah, that even if Warner Brothers ceases to exist,
1: it'll be sold off its pieces to somebody else. Did you watch the uh, Bill and Bat- Batman and Bill movie? No, Did I you didn't. Get a ch- chance to watch it. Well, you know about the story, and I'm sure I of wonder Bill if, Finger, the yeah. real creator of Batman. Yeah, I'm sure that most of our audience, they might, maybe if they saw the opening credits to Batman versus Superman, maybe they. Or maybe they've read the uh, masthead for a Batman comic anytime in the last couple of years. I mean, that was a situation where, like, uh, you know, his family fought for years. Well, his family had given up, um, but ended up fighting for having to fight for years just to get the motherfucker's name on it. Yeah, because of because of not ownership, one, just yeah. credit, just just be- because Bob Kane, who was, you know, who took who made a deal with DC to say. You know, I'm, I am will always be by Bob Kane, you know, um, decided to cut this guy out. And the guy died poor and never really he got as much money as he did right, you know, at the beginning when he was actually doing the works. Um, and he's just responsible for almost everything you know about Batman is is Bill Finger. Yeah, it's a shame that and guys that they get they do get screwed over. Batman should be
0: public domain by now. Mickey yeah, Mouse should be public domain by now. And I think there's a point... And
1: if the argument really against it is, well, look at how much trash look there much, will be. Look, look at, how much look, trash is, the official yes, people make. I was going to say, I think about what Warner Brothers has been making over the past five years.
0: <laughs> Seriously. Oh. I mean, I'm there. and the thing is, when they're in the mode of making trash, that's the only version that you're going to get of that character.
1: Oh, my is God. the trash version. The, the, the trailer for the Teen Titans t- TV series. Oh, oh my God. God. Uh, Okay, just don't, uh, you know what, don't look at it. Everyone who's listening, just don't look at it. It
0: was like they steered into every bad decision they've made over the past five years with Zack Snyder. If you want to see Robin say, fuck Batman, and step on a guy's neck and snap it, this is for you. Because it it really feels like it's almost a spoof that never gets yeah. to the comedy bit. It,
1: it feels like a funnier or die sketch yeah. about how when Warner Brothers took it too far is yeah. what it feels like.
0: That's what it feels. It feels exactly <laughs> like it's going to go into comedy direction, and then that funny bit never happens. Where like the penguin shows up and he's being played by like I don't know Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey <laughs> yeah, or something. Uh, they just get somebody to show Bill up. Bill Farrell, Bill Farrell, or Lorenzo Lamas is playing Bane, <laughs> and it's like. You know, it just, it never happens. Or you get, you know, Paul F. Tompkins as Two-Face or something. (laughs) It just, it never goes that route. But it's sort of like, it sort of expects it to to
1: go there and it never does. And you're like, oh, I get it. You're serious. Never mind. Even the sort of the CW versions of these sort of at least retain their sort of their camp their sense of camp and whimsy and this is just like what the fuck are you doing that's the weird thing with the, the, the CW universe it really isn't for me
0: there's a there's only so many beautiful 20 somethings that I can sort of handle <laughs> going through <laughs> interpersonal drama I, I mean I there's a lot of people who love it but I'm personally sort of allergic to CW stuff yeah there's just a thing about it that I just go yeah never mind but the thing that's so bizarre about all of this is that that Those shows kind of started out kind of going for that kind of grimdark kind of vibe with Arrow, but Arrow pulled out of that and said, you know what? Let's call him Green Arrow and have him have adventures and tell yeah. jokes and stuff, and he gets to meet the Flash and all these other characters, and they've been doing better since they did that. Right, right. I mean, Ghoul, al Ghul is being played by uh, Alexander Siddig from Deep Space Nine oh, on really? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. That's neat. That's kind of cool, Bashir Martin. You know that Julian Bashir.
1: Do you you know what's so weird? You know that uh, he's like he's like the nephew of Malcolm McDowell, right? No, I didn't know that. You, (laughs) this is a challenge for the listeners. Go and uh, bring up, just bring up a Julian Bashir monologue or whatever, and then go and bring up any Malcolm McDowell movie after. I would say after Clockwork Orange and before Generations, Star Trek Generations. just listen to them. They they Their noses are almost exactly the same, and they sound almost exactly the same. They have the same eyes. They now do. Now that you mention their it. Their face is very similar. They're, it is uh, Obviously, uh, Alexander Siddig's complexion is different, um, but their nose is very similar, and they sound so similar. It's ridiculous. Oh, wow. I, was, I had no idea. This is
0: like a Nicolas Cage, you know, Francis Ford Coppola thing, <laughs> right.
1: where they've been related this whole time, and I didn't know. I was watching... Uh, I watched the Blake Edwards movie have you ever seen sunset before no With bruce willis and james gardner who plays a 70 year old Wyatt Earp, who's coming to hollywood in the 20s because a movie is being made about his life i love james gardner <laughs> you know, so much this is a, it's a weird movie it's a like you know it's a so it's a blake edwards movie from 1988 which is weird because i i didn't even know it existed and it was a failure total failure of a movie but it's a it's a western Holly, like uh, Hollywood nostalgia and mystery movie, all rolled into one, with James Garner playing an aged Wyatt Earp. Oh, that sounds um, fun! And the the best part is that uh, Bruce Willis is not. I mean, Bruce Willis is where the movie fails. It's because he has this weird, happy-go-lucky, it's kind of like cellophane cellophane cowboy uh, guy who is like he's the he's the hottest shit in movies, and he's he's automatically Wyatt Earp's best friend. Um, there's so there's something about it that's Something about it that's kind of charming in that respect. But Malcolm McDowell plays the evil studio head who essentially... He he was Charlie Chaplin. He's like a British guy who had like a lovable hobo as his character and uh, does all these pratfalls. And then he becomes an evil, malicious studio head. And I swear to God, I was hearing him talk and I'm like, this could be Julian Bashir. <laughs> it is so similar. Oh, that's so weird. I,
0: I never made that connection before. But I can see it <laughs> it's so strange it's it's again it's it's like the the shredder being voiced by uncle phil yeah. from fresh Prince. And yeah <laughs> it's like once you once you have it brought to your attention you can't not see it yeah yeah so um we actually had another question oh um, yeah let's bring it on uh, megan jaquette had a couple questions from us okay. uh, she said that uh what colors make the best superhero costume what colors would be facepalm worthy Oh, orange is usually pretty bad. Yeah, you can't... Orange doesn't work. Orange is a good bad guy color. Yeah. I mean, the Dr. Octopus is he has oh, orange yeah. on his costume. He's green and orange. I've noticed this is sort of the the model that I think Marvel has used, especially around Spider-Man, is that good guys wear primary colors. Yeah. And bad guys wear secondary colors. So a lot of orange, green, and purple. purple. Yeah. Like, that's what makes the Hulk kind of stand out a bit, because he, he's colored like a bad guy, and it makes him a bit of an outsider.
1: Yeah, and I was trying to explain explain this to my five year old. wasn't uh, wasn't the decision to make superheroes costumes in primary colors in those ways just because of how primitive the pr- the printing process was, the coloring process was. Yeah, that's and a big so part you, of it. You had to make it dis- a character distinguishable if they were you know two centimeters tall on a page or a centimeter tall on a page.
0: Yeah, there's there's a, another one too. There's a the question about like say Superman that Superman being colored the way he is is actually really strange that there's a reason why in a lot of the old comics, the sky would be like pink or yellow against Superman because there was only so many shades of blue you had. Right. And it's kind of strange that you would make him primarily blue when he's always going to be against a blue sky. So you Mm -hmm. kind of had to make adjustments for that where if they'd reversed it and he'd been, you know, wearing a red costume with a blue cape, it might've been easier to make that contrast. Um, Wolverine is an interesting one because the bright primary colors, this classic costume that he wore from the mid 70s through the early 80s, the one that everyone knows from the cartoon with like the kind of bluish shoulder pads, the yellow, the yellow with the black stripes on it. Yeah, um, that's a weird costume for that character to have it's kind of a strange one because he doesn't seem like a sort of personality that would wear bright yellow. <laughs> no, he doesn't. The, the costume that he got later... The brown from, one. The brown one. Yeah, the brown and sense. orange one. Yeah. That one makes sense to him because yeah. then when you see that character standing in a group of superheroes who are wearing bright primary colors, it does sort of denote that there's something different about Wolverine. Yeah. And What, it's more earthy? And I think it's just a better costume all around. Um, they've kind of updated as yellow and blue, but they keep going back to it. And I keep thinking... His the co- the version of the yellow and blue costume that he
1: has right now would look better if they used the color scheme of the orange and the oh, brown. Oh, I see that. Yeah. He made an appearance in the Malala Khan, Miss Marvel. Oh, good. yeah. He doesn't have his powers for whatever reason. He doesn't have his powers, his healing powers anymore. Uh, I was thinking, with the exception of a crazy quilt, you normally don't want, like, repeating patterns. <laughs> <laughs> Unless it's a tartan, maybe. Perhaps it's of a kilt. If you have a k- a kilt-wearing... Celt-wearing superhero. I think I you actually went accent. Irish there. Yeah, no, I, I can't do
0: it. I, I think a lot of it, too, is that a comic book character is sort of different from if you're making a costume for a movie or for cosplay or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because you only have to make that costume once and just photograph it differently. But in a comic book, you have to draw something over and over and over again so you want something, one, that you can draw that many times yeah. without killing your artist. Simplicity, obviously. Simplicity does help. I mean, there's a handful of artists, but you also want something that can be drawn by a wide range of artists with different styles and still look good. Mm-hmm. Like the Beast from the X-Men changed in the early 2000s from being um the classic one that you know of from the cartoon and stuff, sort of blue and furry with the Wolverine-ish type hair. They made him more cat-like, And they changed Mm. his limbs like he had more paw-like hands and his back limbs were kind of like his legs were like a cat's legs. Weird. Um, Mm. Frank Whiteley was really good at making that beast look good, but most other artists were not. So he would, there'd be a wide range, a wide pendulum swing of what he would actually look like from one appearance to the next, because it was never
1: consistent. And it was the fact that he was blue that made him recognizable. (laughs) But and, immediately when you had another blue character, like Nightcrawler, I guess then it's difficult, right? Because there's another blue character.
0: But I mean, with Nightcrawler, there's something recognizable about him, even if he's in black with and a white. tail. Yeah, that he's got a tail, and he's got pointed ears, and he yeah. has kind of curly hair. And he has sort of shadows on his face. But aside from that, that's easy for a bunch of people to draw in a bunch mm-hmm. of different styles. But I've seen versions of Cat Like Beast where he has... Mostly a normal roundish head. I've seen ones where he has like a long, like snagglepuss snout. Hmm. I've seen it where he looks like a panther. I've seen it where he looks like a tiger or a lion. It's just so radically Weird. different that if you just see it, you're like, I don't know if this design really works because a bunch of people all do it differently, and sometimes it looks great and sometimes it looks terrible. And they started slowly changing his body so that. After a while, his body, he got his fingers back. He had like three big stubby paw fingers originally, but he went back to basically having a normal hand and feet. Hmm. So his body looked the same way that it used to, but he still had a cat head and it just, it was so weird. <laughs> and it was never like he was part of the plot. It was just kind of like over time, people were just trying to make him easier to draw. And I've seen versions of Iron Man's armor that are really complicated, and I just would not wish drawing that design on anybody over and over. Because you think of, like, I'm drawing an Iron Man comic. How many panel drawings are there of Iron Man? Like a hundred in that issue? Yeah, maybe. I have to draw that and make it look good over and over from a
1: bunch of different angles and a bunch of different poses. It doesn't... Yeah, it's, it seems like it's the it's it's the ra- rationale behind it is the rationale behind how you make aliens in Star Trek, which is basically put weird shit on the, weird eyebrows, you know, weird yeah. shit on their heads because it's extremely difficult to do, you know, to do something radically different over and over and over again, just and, from a production perspective,
0: and also have variation between all that species. I mean, like yeah. the Klingons, for instance, the Klingons um, have they don't all have the exact same forehead. No. There's a bunch of different Klingon foreheads for a bunch of them, where you can have a big, bumpy, giant head like what they put on Michael Dorn, or you can have a little bumpy one like they put on Christopher Plummer in Star Trek VI. I mean, there's a
1: variation there, but you can... He was probably just uncomfortable with the big ridges, I think.
0: It, I mean, it might be that I mean that could be a big part of it, but there's there's a variation there. But you can tell they're both Klingons yeah.
1: based on what you say a Klingon looks like, which apparently gets totally rebooted every 20 years. Yeah, what the hell? Um, no, but I mean, you you say that it's like well, the one thing that they don't do, often do is they don't have an, an alien that floats and has 12 limbs. And you're yeah. like, well, because it's just too difficult to do. Yeah. And it, it strikes me as the as to answer the listener's question is is it like well, there are just really practical reasons that have to do with the, simpl- the uh, needing simplicity for per- sake of production, you know? And I think
0: uh, superheroes, they do work really well with primary colors, but I think that because you have digital coloring nowadays, you can go in a bunch of different directions design-wise for them. Of course. That there's a thousand variations of blue that you can put on a superhero costume that you wouldn't have been able to do in the 1950s. And um, I'd say bad costumes that are kind of face palm-worthy. The Beast had a costume in the mid-80s that he was part of X-Factor, which is a spin-off of X-Men. Almost all of X-Factor is face palm-worthy. I, I have a, a real <laughs> affection for the outfit with the big X across their chest, <laughs> but they rebooted him in the, about the middle of the series. I kind of like the outfit Cyclops had because he went from blue and yellow to blue and white. Hmm. Uh, but the Beast, he was still in the human-like form Beast mode where he's Mostly looks like a real, a regular human, but I guess his posture is a bit more ape like and he has giant hands and feet. Um, he had a costume that went from being red and blue, which was classic colors that he had from his X Men days, to being brown and yellow, and it just mm. looked really not good. And uh, then he went back to blue and furry, but he still wore that outfit just without the mask. And eventually, in the middle of a crossover, he literally just tore the whole costume off and had his little blue trunks on underneath. And I'm like, there we go. If I would, if I had fur, I wouldn't want to wear that costume over my fur and sweat into it. Because if, if you had the ability to just wear little trunks and feel perfectly fine all the time, not having to wear shoes is one of the best superpowers. Yeah, it's true.
1: Yeah. Wingless flight and no shoes. No shoes. O- in that order. Well, what about the... um? I'm trying to think of variations on Spider-Man's costumes. The one thing that... Had a return in Spider-Man: Homecoming movie that you didn't don't see very much except for early Spider-Man is the webbing in the armpit.
0: Yeah, that was what more prominent at first. Yeah,
1: there was there was it was like oh he can kind of glide like a sugar glider or something like a bat. You know, the original Steve Ditko design
0: on that costume it would go practically from his wrists all the way down to his waist, and they were big. Um, when John Romita Sr. took over as artist, they got smaller, and I think over time they got smaller and smaller. That you can still like. Todd McFarlane, when he was drawing him, it was only if he, like, he really stretched his arm up that you'd see a bit of the webbing, but it was small. It's still there, but sometimes it's not. It's a kind of thing that it's kind of an artistic
1: flourish. Okay, so it's, since you brought his name out, Todd. Todd McFarlane. You brought Todd's name out. I always thought that Spawn looked ridiculous. Well, Spawn is kind of... It makes sense that Spawn looks ridiculous. Because... <laughs> as far as a ridiculous costume is concerned. Because it's He's a, got like a luchador mask on, yeah, it, for he's, God's sakes. Well, he's, he's, and a giant chain, which no... no, Even no supernatural being can carry around that much chain. Well, he's got a cape that's... But the, his costume's also alive,
0: oh, in a way yeah, that it right. isn't. So the idea yeah. that it stretches and, it go, and he's got this cape that would be like 30 feet long... On a normal person, and it's always moving in a weird, dramatic way. It kind of makes sense, but if you were going to wear that as just a cloth costume <laughs> with these giant chains and spikes and stuff all over you, it makes no sense, especially with a 50 foot long cape. I mean, it's, it's just right. keeping longer and longer and more <laughs> absurd. But the fact that it's alive and it's probably, it's like Swamp Thing, that Swamp Thing mm. is always, his body is made out of whatever stuff, you know, whatever vegetable material there is around that he jumped into and formed right. himself out of. Um So he can look different every time you draw him and look strange no matter where he is or where what he grew out of. Um I think Spawn is the same because his costume can just change and that it's a little bit weirder when Todd McFarlane would draw Batman with that same cape. But ah. again, you know, drama
1: trumps reality when it comes to, <laughs> you know, a comic book character. That I, I, well, the thing about the thing about Spawn that I always felt is, you know, we always make reference to Homer Simpson's dream car. How you know you just take this really the what you think are the best ideas and you put them together and they end up re- looking really stupid. That's like the design of Spawn for me. For yeah. whatever reason, it's just that ridiculous. But that's
0: the thing that this other creators have done with Spider Man, for instance, is that Spider Man is one of those rare characters that has none of his face showing in his mask. That if you have Batman, you can have Batman visibly yell because you can see the shape of his eyes. I mean, even then, there's artistic license taken that his eyes are just white slits on a mask, but you notice he can move his eyebrows and the mask moves with it. Captain America and a lot of these other characters do the same thing. Spider-Man doesn't have any of that. In fact, his eyes are sort of these static, you know, sort of tear shaped uh things on his mask but a lot of artists have taken liberties with that either make them where they can be expressive where his eyes can narrow mm-hmm. um and it makes no physical sense to do that but it's just a way of communicating this character's emotion and and their body language in a way that uh allows them to do that it, like deadpool will do that stuff too sometimes right like it like his eyes will get wide and it makes no sense. And I kind of, it's the Deadpool movies is the only time I've seen them do this with this kind of masks, which is why like Tobey Maguire's mask would always get torn off in the finale of all those Spider-Man movies. So he would
1: have a chance to emote
0: and have the big dramatic moments. But I kind of love the fact that the Deadpool movies have kind of done the classic comic book version of it, which is, his eyes are moving in ways that they just can't in real life. <laughs> and then there's some, they, there's probably some amount of, of movement there, but there's also some CGI. So you can see his eyes move and you can see him keep his mask off ni- on 90% of the time and still be able to emote and be sarcastic and to react and go, boo boo to things. <laughs> um, that's a good example of it because those are just be slits on a mask, but they actually are just eyeballs <laughs> that are on his mask. And I kind of like that because it's like, None of this is real. We're already talking about a guy who literally can't be killed, and he's a ninja. <laughs> and the same thing with Spider-Man. It's like, I can allow a certain amount of, of reality that just doesn't work. Um, I I have a lot more issues with the plausibility of people acting in a certain way than I will about costumes moving in a certain way. Sure. or Or... Um, superpowers and stuff like that. And Superman is a guy who can throw a chain around the planet and drag it through space. (laughs) So that's a stuff. That's a place where clearly reality doesn't work the same way there. But I, I draw more lines with the way Superman acts. Sure. Sure. So another question that uh, Megan Jaquette asked is what is the best sci-fi vehicle? And, uh, what do you have to say about that?
1: A sci-fi vehicle? Like, uh, you know, like, uh, a space jet bike driven any... by Lobo like that kind of vehicle or yeah, if you sci-fi want... vehicle like Babylon 5 yeah like the Enterprise oh or... no, you're saying a physical thing to drive in I was like well, a vehicle you mean like a sad love story that's yeah. a great sci-fi vehicle for a no no the best sci-fi vehicle were
0: I have my no, answer are we gonna do are we gonna, are we gonna do an
1: Imperial Star Destroyer versus Enterprise D here? well I don't mean
0: like in a fight <laughs> it's <laughs> it's a question
1: of what do you like more because is
0: the Star Destroyer your
1: favorite vehicle? Or is there something else? Like, for instance... I mean, at Valver- Valverde, we do, I do have in the closet, you can't see it from here, a Puzz 3D of the, the Star Destroyer right there. So we could make a 3D. You and I could, after six hours of sweating it out, we could make a Star Destroyer if we wanted to.
0: Like, I have a lot of affection for... Um, a lot of vehicles, like for instance, the Batmobile. Certain Batmobiles, sure, are pretty fucking cool. The classic Adam West Batmobile is definitely high on my list.
1: That's a really tough question.
0: That is a really yeah. cool looking car. I like I like the uh, the Back to the Future DeLorean. Yeah, yes. Um, I like the RV from Stripes.
1: <laughs> is pretty fucking cool. The Ecto One. Wait, wait, wait. Did she say this specifically sci-fi though? Well, about specifically, these sci-fi are all Batman oh. is science fiction. Okay, all right, fair enough. The RV from uh, Ball space, space Balls.
0: Yes, that yes, would be that a good was- one. <laughs> I think the the big one for me, honestly, would probably be the Millennium Falcon. It's kind of hard for me because the Millennium Falcon is practically a character too. It's not yeah. just um away from getting from point A to point B. You see Han and Chewie regularly fight with it. It's clearly this heavily modified thing that was a piece of like hauling equipment. That's what it was for. It's essentially like a U-Haul truck that they have <laughs> made into something really awesome through constant modification that it is not the version that rolled off the factory floor and that it breaks sometimes because of all the modification they do. You get to see them battling with getting the hyperdrive working. There's a scene in, I think it's Empire Strikes Back, where they they get into they pile into the cockpit, they turn it on, and it immediately turns off. Han spins around and <laughs> bashes it with his fist and it turns back on. <laughs> Little things like that, I guess it gives it a real personality where... Uh, even in The Force Awakens, when Han is offering Rey a job as sort of the third person on the ship, because we're getting kind of old, we can't do this forever. One of the things he puts out there, he says, you can take care of yourself. And the other thing he says is a reason to hire her is you appreciate the Falcon. Hmm. And you get the impression that that's, that's a lot of it, that people's usual reaction to seeing the Falcon is what a piece of junk He gets it like twice in the original movie from both Luke and from Leia, who both say, what is that thing? Um, I think that he's kind of takes it personally. And the fact that she clearly knows how to fiddle with it is a reason that he's like, yeah, I can can hire Ray on because she appreciates this thing because it has a lot of personality and it takes a lot of work, but she's willing to to play with it. And I think that it's kind of like my dog likes you, so you must be a good person. (laughs) It's a bit like that. So I I've got to say the Millennium Falcon has got to be my favorite sci-fi vehicle.
1: I think my favorite sci-fi vehicle is tr- 1982's Tron, not the light cycle. The light okay. cycles are amazing, but the I don't know what you call them, the recognizers, is that what they are? The uh they're the giant giant flat ships that have two little pylons and they can turn inwards to be like little stompers. <laughs> yeah. And I especially love the fact that at a certain point in time, Jeff Bridges' character has to fly a broken one of those around with a little bit trying to instruct him how to do it. And since it's broken, it's in this in the world. It's sort of one of its little things is sort of hanging and falling off, and so it's not flying straight. And so there's something funny about how they look really they look really imposing and scary because you see them. From sort of the ground up and they're they they're like coming in, in waves and then when you see him uh, him fly it he flies it in like crash lands it and something it seems goofy and comical and silly when he's I flying it, that it design. almost feels like it's made out of Lego <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> pieces are pieces are coming off and he's able to use his force powers to bring it back together yeah oh. that's that's pretty neat Tron is one of those things where
0: the the very of its time special effects because they're so stylized overcomes the fact that it's older. Because it really feels like you're in an old video game. Yeah, that's true. And I think that's what really makes it work. Um, Yeah, there's, there's a lot of these. I mean, again, I think for me, it's a question of when does something develop its own personality? Because there's plenty of things that just look cool. Again, like Boba Fett's ship looks cool, but what is it really? Yeah. We know it's called Slave
1: One. That's a little it's weird. A little problematic. <laughs> really, does Boba Fett keeps does he does he the guy who takes slaves and delivers slaves? Is that why it's slave one? I think he's a pretty shady or it, dude. Or is it slave like uh like a hard drive? You know, it used to be you had a slave hard drive and a master hard drive, which is weird terminology when you think about it. I think Do he's you, just a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why he's in a ship named Slave yes. One. Yes.
0: Oh, it's why they're called star destroyers, because that sounds, like a, sounds like a bad thing to do. You're like, but can they really destroy stars? No, no, they, but they can fuck you they up.
1: Can, they, they should, it's just not as intimidating if you call them city destroyers. It's
0: a big triangle covered with guns <laughs> and it can fuck you up. Because, I mean, when you see them in any kind of fight, there's like hundreds of lasers coming off of that thing. It's true. They're just constantly firing and there's no part of the ship you can go to where it's not shooting at you.
1: Uh, and uh, it seems it seems impenetrable, even though they seem to be uh, 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 they seem to be sabotaged constantly.
0: Yeah, and I remember from the old X Wing video game that you can take down their shields by blowing up those two sphere things on the top. Oh yeah, that's right. It but- actually is in the movie. That that happens in uh, Return of the Jedi, where that guy in the the uh,
1: A Wing just goes spiraling into it. Well, if you were to narrow that to like what my my favorite. Star Wars vehicle would be... It would be the uh, speeders on Hoth. Or no, excuse me, on Endor. The, oh, uh, the, the speeder the, bikes. The, light, the bikes, the yeah. speeder bikes. Those are really cool looking. They are. Those, they they look like they're totally nimble. They have the, they're have they. not like large and bulky. They look like what a motorcycle looks like, which is we don't need a lot of weight. You just need the power to move you, the, a person, as as quickly as possible. And they make cool sounds. There's a lot of Ben Burt. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, so, there's a
1: lot of that in there that's pretty great. I just like the fact that you can do a wicked air brake on those things. Oh man. <sighs> you
0: could probably do a full on Rockford turn in <laughs> one of those things. That would be pretty cool. By the way, James Garner did his own driving on the Rockford files. I do know this. That's amazing. It's, and whenever the insurance companies would get up their ass and make them use a stunt driver for a little while, that stunt drivers would never be as good. Because James Garner loved driving. It was his first, He chose the car for the show which is the, I guess we've, we talked about that before, the steering wheel on the, on Kit from Night yeah, Rider. Yeah, yeah. That thing is, that is a death trap. <laughs> the person who designed that did not have to drive it. Right. The poor stuntman that yeah, had They probably a, just put the regular wheel on it and when, they, when you couldn't see it, probably. Oh, God, they better, because that is just <laughs> insane. But um, I guess the, the last question that Megan Jaquette had for us is uh, my daughter will be two years old this month. What are some kid friendly things I should introduce her to, and I think this Whoa. is a place where
1: you're better equipped than I am two years old, two years old well, it's interesting he took a he took a liking to superman i i think I think Superman works perfectly at that age I think I mean you're not gonna play him a Zack Snyder movie let your daughter excuse me play her a Zack Snyder movie, but Superman is undeniably awesome at that age uh Uh, he's been in the he's been in the uh, conversation a lot lately because there's a documentary about him but uh, um, Mr. Rogers of course oh they have a that's a
0: great documentary if you haven't
1: seen it I really I really do want to see it I mean Mr. Rogers I just started bawling like a child yeah I couldn't I couldn't make it without tearing up through the trailers oh God. god but uh you know, anything, um, the Daniel Tiger. This is me giving a recommendation that I don't think our listeners who don't have children would watch, but there's a Daniel Tiger series that's based on the characters from Mr. Rogers, it's and it's done by his foundation, and that's amazing. That's really, really good. And, uh, you know, it's not going to give you the sort of same thematic, you know, awesome, deep stuff that a, you know, like a Star Wars would or a comic book would, but, um, those are, those are really amazing. Those are really well done. There's a, bit in the documentary and it was weird because I think
0: all of us, we get, we get, we put up our cynical blinders as we get older and we kind of scoff. There's a, there's a period of everyone's life where you scoff at Mr. Rogers. And I think as you become older, you, you kind of learn to embrace him again because you realize how there's a sincerity there. The part that made me just fucking lose it while watching that movie. And again, this is something I don't talk about a lot, but I have a tremendous imposter syndrome. <laughs> i I you and me both. That's why we're so great on this yeah, show because we're this is why we do a podcast. We we want to have everyone hear what we have to say, but we don't want to look you in the eye. Um, but I, I will have a recording session happen sometimes where it doesn't go the way I want it to. And I will feel sometimes like complete garbage for a couple of days. I don't yeah. know if you do this too. Yeah. Yep. Where you 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 go through the stages of grief for like, why do I do this? Why do I put up with this? I, I'm not good enough to do this. And this is just evidence of that. And it doesn't matter what other counter evidence is on the other end of that scales. Uh, but I convince myself that I'm a fraud and that I'm no good and that I should just quit. And it usually goes away when I need to start editing. Mm-hmm. And I, I get rid of the um, platonic ideal of what I want this episode to be And I just let it be what it is. And I'm like, I'm not smart. I'm not funny. Uh, And it's only a matter of time before people realize what a fucking phony you are. And those are the voices that that get into my head a lot. And it takes a tremendous amount of effort to not listen to those voices and to not let them command how I feel about myself. Because I feel those all the fucking time. Yep. And, um, I have to basically shut off my own emotional reaction and say, you are a bad judge of this yeah. and that you have to start listening to what other people say about you, that you are not tricking them. You are not putting one over on them when they like you. And there's a bit in the movie and I'm starting to get kind of teared up now, but, um, the part where he says, you are not a mistake. Yeah. And, oh, Jesus.
1: <laughs> That's incredible.
0: Um, I just started bawling over this wow. and I didn't expect to.
1: So, I don't know. I'm just like, <laughs> oh, Jesus. No, but I mean, can, just the power of that, the, the, yeah. the, the power of the fact that what is it that he says in the trailer is that love is at the heart of everything in this world, either love or the lack of it. Like, Oh. How seldom, I mean. There's the sort of platitudinal thing about like the Beatles saying "All you need is love" is sort of this mantra of if we just if we just expressed everything in love, it would be there. But I mean, for him to understand that it wasn't about showing unconditional love, unconditional love and acceptance. It isn't
0: this bullshit that people throw out about oh, everybody yeah, yeah.
1: gets a trophy. It's about everyone is worthy of love. Yes, uh, that is. Shockingly powerful, uh, and we, you know, um, he, he was t- about emotions. I mean, he's a gu- he's a guy who wanted in a society that emotions become an impediment to, for us to being good workers and a pediment for us to being uh, a way know, to
0: single people out to, to pick on, right. and that
1: this makes you different. You're not supposed to feel something here. And he, he was someone who would say it's, you know, how you feel is important uh, and understanding why you feel and expressing the way how you feel is important. And we lose this, especially in an online world. Um, when our, sometimes our genuine displays of emotion are met with, this kind of attack of this negativity and the cynicism, like it is beautiful that it exists. Uh, I really need to see this movie obviously with, with some Kleenexes for sure. Um, and I mean, I, I wouldn't, uh, even if you're two. some people, people would say, don't, don't let kids watch that. But, do let kids watch something even if it's for 20 minutes that's going to make them feel like they are worth it and going to make them understand hey there's someone else out here out here who's an adult who what is it someone described him as that to kids um to kids he seems like an adult but an adult he seems like a kid yeah like th- who has that amazing amount of sincerity and is speaking in a way that is that is earnest um direct and, and is kind yeah and is, is not not judgmental like Beautiful. Totally yeah. and completely beautiful.
0: It's, it's probably the most powerful movie I've seen this year. I and mean, just, it was amazing little things like that, that it, for all the, the cynical, built up, like, scoffy shit that you build up around yourself as a coping mechanism, he has this ability to sort of get right through it. And it, the thing that he does, I think, that makes him stand apart is that he talks directly to the viewer as if they're the only viewer. Mm-hmm and it really does feel like he's talking to you. Yeah. And yeah. there's something kind of affirming about that, been powerful about that, and the sense of recognizing the humanity in other people that I don't yeah. think a lot of people do because I mean everything else is so fast and it's it's supposed to be funny and then but there's a vulnerability that he allows himself to share and it makes it feel like it's safe to share it
1: back. That's awesome. That's really great and So yeah, I mean, I'm teared up right now <laughs> oh, I think I'm going to give Mike a hug here Okay <laughs> Thanks for sharing, Mike That was awesome uh, uh, Oh, thank you <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> But that was a very good question uh, that was th- Thank you so much And congratulations on the two-year-old well, Welcome to uh, the hardest time of your life Okay. <laughs> Aside from those years where Zack Snyder was in charge of the DC universe,
0: <laughs> that was pretty fucking hard. Oh, or junior high, as I. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Radio vs. the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Val Verde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobiah Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Dan Lombardo. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com.
3: You know something, Lady Aberlin? What, Daniel? I've been wondering about something myself. Something about Mr. Skunk. Something about mistakes. What is it? I've been wondering if I was a mistake. If you were a mistake? (laughs) What do you mean, Daniel? Well, for one thing, I've never seen a tiger that looks like me. No. And I've never Mm. heard a tiger that talks like me. I don't know any other tiger who lives in a clock. No, neither do I. Or loves people. Oh, Daniel. Sometimes I wonder if I'm too tame. Sometimes I wonder if I'm a mistake. I'm not like anyone else. I know when I'm asleep. Or even awake Sometimes I get to dreaming That I'm just a fake I'm not like anyone else Others I know are big and are wild I'm very small and quite tame Most of the time I'm weak and I'm mild do you suppose that's a shame Oh no. often I wonder if I'm a mistake I'm not supposed to be scared am I sometimes I cry and sometimes I shake wondering isn't it true that the strong never break I'm not like anyone else I know, I'm not like anyone else.
4: I think you are just fine as you are. I really must tell you, I do like the person that you are becoming. When you are sleeping, when you are waking, are my friend. It's really true. I like you. Crying or shaking or dreaming or breaking. There's no one mistaking it. You're my best friend. I think you are just fine as you are. I really must tell you I do like the person that you are becoming. When you are sleeping, when you are waking, you're not a fake. You're no mistake. You are my friend. I wonder if
3: I are mistake. just fine
4: as you I'm are. Like I, else. Really must I know. tell you. I do. When I'm asleep like or even awake, sometimes becoming. I get to dreaming
3: that when I'm just you are asleep. Sleeping. I'm not when like you are awake. You are my friend. Others really I know true. are
4: big I and are like wide. I'm very Small and quite dying or shaking, or most of the time I'm There's weak and no I'm it. Do you suppose that's a shame?
3: I, I wonder if I'm a just mistake. fine as you are. I'm not supposed I to be I scared. Must Sometimes I cry and sometimes I shake Wondering isn't it true that the strong never break I'm not when like you anyone else not a No, I'm not You're like no